Welcome to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. Our revels now have ended. <laughs> For we have mercifully, to the listener, mercifully arrived at our last installment for our coverage of Dune, the novel. Yeah. Yup. Here we are. We're going to talk about the last three chapters today, Matthew. Been well, a long time coming. Been a long time coming. 46, 47, and 48. Of course, we might as well address this now. Many people ask us if we're going to cover any of the other books. Um, it's funny because I actually picked up Dune, um, what's the second one? Dune Messiah. Messiah, yeah. It's, n- it's only like 300 something pages. It's super short. So okay. we might explore that in the future. It's not 700 pages like this book is. <laughs> it's <laughs> exactly. a lot shorter. So maybe that's something we can talk about in the future. But no plans currently, but it's not off the table. Would that be a fair thing to say? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. Not against the idea. <clears throat> yeah. Well, we are going to be uh, wrapping this up, and, and I'm excited about it. And um, I know you and I haven't sat down. We haven't sat down to talk about this in a while, but I don't think that's going to stop us from diving into some of the action here. But uh, I think that's about it for our preamble. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you say we get cracking as we uh, pick up where we left off, chapter forty six? Sound good? Yes, sir. Yeah. You, you want to read us in, or you want me to read us in? Let me let us sit. Let me hit us with a little chapter marker first. And that day dawned when Arrakis lay at the hub of the universe, with the wheel poised to spin from Arrakis' awakening by the Princess Irulan. We're finally going to meet today, by the way. Finally, for like a second. (laughs) That last chapter. (laughs) There she is. All right, bye. That's pretty much how it goes. But yeah, no, dude, it's been a long time coming, but here we are with Arrakis once being considered kind of the wastrel backwater, you know, uh, it's a necessity, but we don't like it kind of planet. But now everything in the universe hinges on what happens here. Yes. Cool. It is, in uh, so many themes come together, I think, in these last three chapters. And that's, I think, one of the things I really enjoy about it. There's a lot of great quotes across these three chapters, but... As we were discussing before we sat down to record, chapter 46 here, and in 47, there's a lot of action, and when I say action, I don't necessarily mean fighting, but there is a lot of descriptive text here about things that are happening, and uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to getting into it, because it starts right off with uh, this incredible vision of something that we're going to see, um, and, and this is the science fiction stuff. This is their looking through oil lenses. I believe we start with uh, Stilgar, uh, astonished at what he sees when he says, "Will you look at that thing?" And he's got his <laughs> he's got his you know macro binoculars like Luke. Hopefully, he doesn't get ambushed <laughs> by a Tuscan Raider. And uh, they see uh, Arakeen, uh, and they also see the temporary lodging place for what is five legions of Saduka. Because somebody has come on scene, and that is his royal imperial majesty, the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV. He is here. He's here. He's here, which is bad. 
when the emperor's here, that means you have screwed up and I'm here to fix everything. I show up with five legions of Sardaukar and I'm here to fix things because things aren't going well. <laughs> yeah, from the perspective of the Harkonnens running things, it's been a bit of a sloppy mess for the past couple years. It's just been deteriorating and getting worse under the growing power of the unknown Muad'Dib. Indeed, not to mention you have Raban doing what he does best, oppressing the locals. We never really get a POV on that, which is unfortunate. It's yeah. um, It would have been nice to see what Raban was up to on... Um, on, on Arrakis as the man running the show, but um, we don't get to see that, other than we do learn in a future chapter, spoiler, is that um, something happens to him <laughs> in the course of that duty, which I'm sure we'll get to. But um, five legions is a lot. <laughs> and um, yeah. they've been watching them all night. I, I imagine that they're just, there's this basin where the city is. I believe it's, is it Arakeen? I believe is what they're looking at as a city. Yeah. That's the yeah, capital city with the ma- massive shield across, across it right now. And I believe this is a, this is a, f- this is a big moment in Dune lore. It is the battle of Arakeen. You can always, if you're not reading the novel, you can always look at that. I'm sure there are articles on it, <clears throat> but um, yeah, it's, it's the arrival of the emperor. It's that moment in return of the Jedi <laughs> the emperor's <laughs> most displeased he's here to fix things yeah yeah with his gigantic looming metal tent full yep. of troops there's a lot of great description here matt paul swung the telescope to f- scan the far wall of the basin seeing the pockmarked cliffs the slides that mark the tomes of so many of his father's troopers and he had a momentary sense of the fitness of things i love the way that's described the fitness of things, that the shades of those men should look down on this moment. The Harkonnen forts and towns across the shielded lands lay in Fremen hands or cut away from their source like stalks severed from a plant and left to wither. Only this basin and its city remained to the enemy. So tactically speaking, the Harkonnen have been pushed all the way to the Arakeen city, or the city of Arakeen would probably be a better way to say it, and any type of outpost or holding or any part of their domain has been pushed away, has been just taken by the Fremen. They've pushed them all the way out. I mean, what we're just seeing here is this slow push of these fervent warriors who serve the Muad'Dib, the, right. the jihad as it's called in the book, right? And I thought it was, it was interesting how <clears throat> this chapter, I mean, it makes for a great sense of tension throughout this this chapter Indeed. as we as we see Paul and Stilgar and Gurney obviously executing this plan going about their their plan of attack and making sure their preparations are in order but we don't have quite a clear you know idea or a picture of what that plan is just yet and we right. we kind of get to see it unfold which is really cool yeah and what we're seeing is like you said i think tension is the best way to describe chapter 46 there is a lot of tension. There is a lot of buildup as they sort of watch from covered positions, they being Paul and his men. They watch from covered positions at the arrival of this intense battle force, which probably feels like with five legions of Sardaukar that it's safe. And it probably feels like with many of the houses, which what we don't see, although it is described that there are many houses present 
above the planet's surface in space, the houses of the Landshroud, which means the major houses of which there's like 12 or so. So there's probably a lot of, there's probably an intense naval presence above the planet as well. Right, right. That's something he revealed in the last chapter that his, his prescience had like made him aware that there was basically an armada floating above them. But mm-hmm. Paul has a lot of confidence, you know, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but I know Paul has a lot of confidence in this chapter that they're not really going to have to worry about the houses or the guild coming down. Um, the emperor's here, he has a plan. but <laughs> but Paul is like, yeah, don't fret about them. <laughs> it's yep. going to be fine. Yeah. He's not, he does seem awfully confident. And, uh, and despite Gurney and Silgar being concerned with exposure or eyeballs or Maybe they'll try. Maybe they'll try. I think it's right in the beginning. They they they're concerned. Uh, Silgar thinks maybe they'll attempt sortie by Thopter. And he's like, fine. We we can burn down Thopters today if we need to. It doesn't matter to us. And there's another part of this chapter that adds tension and an unknown to it, and that is that there's a storm coming. One of those reputable sandstorms that happen on the planet's surface from time to time. And uh, one of the cool politics of this, so here's all this stuff. They're sliding around, they're looking through their binoculars, they're seeing the uh, the forces of Shaddam, they're seeing Harkonnens flying banners for Chome, which is crazy. All this stuff is happening. Paul seems confident, light is falling, and a storm is coming, figuratively and uh, literally, as it were, if you're in yeah. fact the... Uh, uh, the forces of Harkonnens and Shaddam. And um, yeah, I, I like that Paul, Paul is very confident, right? He knows that this isn't just, what I love about this, Matt, is this isn't just a fighting force. This isn't just a military operation. This is a military and a political operation because he's arrived on scene with more than just soldiers. Paul even says it, they even brought their women, Right lackeys, servants, <laughs> people to witness this, what will be the emperor's might, almost like a demonstration of this is how we get things done when, when, when the emperor shows up. It's right. full of hubris. It's full of hubris. Exactly. That's what I was going to say is that it really shows that again, you know, and we'll come to find out a lot more about the emperor's perspective of Arrakis and the Fremen in the next chapter, but still the, what, what, Paul and company can see from their vantage point is a pretty overconfident force. Like, I think that's what they're really observing when they notice that, like, they brought, he brought his whole court, all his fucking, he brought his jugglers. Like, they have mm-hmm. all these idiots out there that they don't even need because they think it's going to be easy. Yeah. Yeah. They think it's just a matter of course at this point. Right. They're so used to, you know, and, and we, we come to learn a lot about, you know, the Sardaukar's perspective as well. You know, they, they're so used to victory. Like, that's just where the emperor commands it. The Sardaukar stab forward and victory is always certain to them. They are the sword of the Imperium. Yeah. You would say. Yeah. Unstoppable, seemingly. Right. It's seemingly. <laughs> <laughs> Until they run to the Fidakin or whatever they're called, they're the Fidakin. Uh, yeah, I like saying it that way too. Who are deployed all throughout this depression, waiting for the command. They're just waiting. They're ready to wet their blades. Oh, dude, I where is it? I <clears throat> I had a a a quote highlighted. 
Uh, I guess it's not quite here yet, but no, like I just really like seeing these little glimpses of their defenses. You know, we get a few Indeed. moments where, where a Fedakin comes by and, you know, Paul gets a report from them and they're saying, okay, we have our projectile weapons and our guns mounted along the rock wall and they're going to be lined up and ready and, and everything's in place. And, you know, and so it's like, again, we don't know what the plan is fully yet, but we're like, okay, like they, they have guns ready, artillery ready, like Indeed. things are already lined up and pointed at, at the emperor. That's right. <laughs> and the uh, one caveat is that the emperor has a shield. Yeah. So yeah, his a massive shield. W- yeah. We, he's got a massive shield around this, this city by the sound of it. <laughs> but, um, there's this great, great quote where uh, Gurney Halleck clears his throat and he says, hadn't we best get into a place of safety? And Paul says, there is no such place. <laughs> it reminds me of this great quote from Game of Thrones when, um, when uh, the Hound is escorting Arya and of course they're interrupted by Brienne. She's like, I'm here to take her to safety. And the Hound's been protecting her the whole time. And he goes, safety, where the fuck's that? And he just is like, her father's dead, her brother's dead, her other brother's dead, her mother's dead. Like, he just goes on and on. about, And and that's like the same sentiment from Paul here. He's like, there's no such place as safety at this stage of the game. This is it. (laughs) Because, you know, they they have the battle ahead of them to worry about, but they also, you know, we don't quite realize what they're doing with the storm yet, but they have the storm coming in on their heels at the same time as they're preparing for their attack. So a lot of variables in this battle. And, and, and again, you know, I I think there was a bit of a prelude to this, to this chapter, you know, the chapter right before 45, um, you know, the last thing that Paul said is that all paths lead into darkness. Now, Mm -hmm. like Paul, you know, so much comes down to this moment, even his prescient vision, it's is obscured it's muddy because essentially they don't know how this is going to turn out it could turn out many different ways and that's Indeed. again i think adds to the background of the tension of this chapter that even paul our our character who can have at least a glimpse of the future and and has seen multiple paths and multiple possibilities for him the even the even him this moment is dark and he doesn't know exactly how it's going to play out indeed yeah and they have an hour to go right yeah, have you ever been in a situation where a hurricane was coming? Yes, actually. Yeah, it's a re- it, it's a real intense feeling of uh, intense. It's 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 fearful. You you're fearful. Now imagine, oh, yeah. and, and, and now imagine this sandstorm, which is according to Silgar going to be a, a great grandmother of a storm. Right. Imagine <laughs> that you are about to launch an attack on top of this, or or shortly after it passes through. And you're just watching the time tick away as it closes in. You can feel it in the air. You can look. You know, they, they talk about how, you know, the air is chancy. <laughs> it's, yeah. You don't yeah. want to take a copter up there. You don't. Obviously, we know that Paul and Jessica made it through a sandstorm with piloting, but it's not something you would make a practice of doing. No. <laughs> no. And that, again, uh, something that actually adds to their benefit, um, you know, they can tell from their vantage point that all of the emperor's small ships and thopters and things like that are grounded and tied up. They've, they've got their own reports of the weather coming. And so they're, they're kind of like huddling up and preparing for a heavy storm, which yep. they feel confident about because they have their shield. Um, but it, it, it's an interesting, you know, tactical, 
uh, posture because all of their short range ships that could fly out and, and, and start attacking and doing, you know, sortie runs, and they're all grounded. support for the Harkonnen. They're all tied down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I like this. Obviously, Gurney's in a bit of a mood. He's gloomy before a fight. And uh, there's this great moment where uh, he, he lets a bit of levity come through when he says, uh, he says something, it glooms me to think on all the poor Harkonnen souls who, will be dis- who we will dispatch unshriven. And Silgar <laughs> chuckles at this and says, he talks like a Fedakin or Fedakin. And, and, and Paul has this great line, Gurney was born a death commando. and this is classic leadership out of paul which is let them occupy their minds with small talk let them let them ease their tensions let them think about something right Uh, you you would see this in the early seasons of walking dead you know let's let's do something let's 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 uh let's stay busy so we don't think about the death and destruction around us stay busy distract your mind for now don't don't sink into the darkness so to speak <laughs> the, in, the anticipation in the in you know worry and that that's that'll fatigue you it saps strength i believe is what paul how paul describes it right right and you know soon after this we start to get a little bit more you know inklings about what the plan's going to be and how it's going to work because <laughs> we realize that gurney is worried about one aspect of the plan and that is using atomics against the imperial shield um and gurney is like you know i understand his concern he's like hey we start dropping them points up to the sky they start dropping them like what what, that's not going to work out for us but paul is again extremely confident and he's saying you know they don't dare and for the same reason that they cannot risk our destroying the source of the spice um and then you know gurney replies but the injunction against it and then paul says the injunction, it's fear, not the injunction that keeps the houses from hurling atomics against each other. The language of the Great Convention is clear enough. Use of atomics against humans shall be cause for planetary obliteration. We're going to blast the shield wall, not humans. So Paul is kind of counting on two things. He's counting on the fact that they are not deploying atomics against troops or people or a city. They're just literally hitting a shield wall with it. Yes. Um, and he's also counting on the fact that the the great houses and the armada above them is not going to retaliate in kind because of the you know they they are aware that Paul knows that the spice is their everything and Paul has the power to destroy it. The guild has essentially sussed that out. What, what I like about that reality is that I wonder how they're certain that he's certain he knows how to destroy it. Right? Yeah, we know he yeah. knows how because of the water of life. Right, we know that that's a that that was another thing that happened at the end of the last chapter, which was, yeah. you know, he he talks about essentially, if, if you forget, essentially he says, uh, in the last chapter in forty five, he says, um, Paul took a deep breath and said, "Mother, you must change a quantity of the water for us. So we need the catalyst." Cheney have a scout force sent out to find a pre-spice mass. If we plant a quantity of the water of life above a pre-spice mass, do you know what will happen? And Jessica realizes it in that moment in the last chapter. The water of death, he said. It'd be a chain reaction spreading death among the little makers, killing a vector of life cycle. Which it sounds, Arrakis will become a desolation without spice or maker. So what it sounds like is it's like a, like this chain reaction that will wipe out all the worms, thus all the The spice. spice. 
This and probably not in a, when they say chain reaction. I don't think it's as visceral as in this immediate thing. But yeah, he has the power to destroy the spice, and the in the spacing guild is concerned with that threat because they're so reliant on it, and they're there too. The spacing guild is represented in the in the there. Everyone has an interest in Arrakis. This dust yeah. ball, as you described, and it's only because of this spice melange. But right. The uh, the atomics in the Great Convention. It's interesting because that came about in uh, probably around the Butlerian Jihad when the thinking machines were blasted with atomics. Of course, uh, we know the Orange Catholic Bible said, "Thou shalt not make a machine in the likeness of a human mind." <laughs> so, <laughs> when it came time for the destruction of them, the Great Convention happened between the houses and the Spacing Guild and the Imperium after the destruction of the thinking machines. They're like, you know what? No, no atomics. You know, you know <laughs> what? No chat GPT and no atomics. <laughs> We're just going to have to settle TikTok that TikTok in atomics, it got to go. It's, <laughs> it's undermining national security. Um, so pretty wild. But um, it's, it's, Gurney doesn't love this. I mean, Gurney's an Imperium man. He's a, he's a great house servant forever. He knows the Great Convention matters. He knows about the injunction. He's concerned, but Paul's like, no, 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 no. Hurling atomics at each other is different than using atomics on things like shields. And uh, mm-hmm. and Gurney does make a point by saying it's too fine a point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, being cute. The distinction is too narrow. Yeah. Yeah. So we know that that's going to happen. We know we have their weapons trained. Once the shield goes down, their weapons are to disrupt is to destroy any chance of escaping off-world, destroying the noses of those ships that are all grounded yeah. so they can't go anywhere. That was a moment I really loved when they said, mm-hmm. you know, before the storm rolls in, line up your targets now before you lose visibility. So all the artillery pieces and, and projectile weapons they have line their sights up on all the sitting ships, you know, aiming for the nose of all these ships so that even, after, even if there's no visibility after the storm blows in, they can just open up and take out all the ships sitting there and strand the the emperor on Arrakis. Yeah, pre-sighted. I love that idea. I yeah. love the idea that they're just, you know, there's this great moment in Band of Brothers where, uh, you know, Easy Company gets opened up on with mortars. And it becomes quickly apparent to Lieutenant Winters that everyone's frozen. And he's standing up going, move, move. They've pre-zeroed this. So he knows that way before they got there, they were launching mortars at the ground and going, okay, this is perfect aim. So when the allies come in, we know right there, shoot. <laughs> we don't need, we could, you could do it blindfolded. It's pre-sighted. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what we're seeing here. This idea that as the storm rolls in, you can open up with your LAS cannons <laughs> and they just arc through the storm. And you're like, wait, <laughs> what? How, how did that happen? Confident, Dude. no no reason to move the ships. You got a shield. You don't think the shields are going to be too bad affected by the storm, by the sound of it. But oh no. <laughs> I I cannot wait. You know, actually- How's it going to look a, in the movie, you're wondering? It, oh, big time. Two things. I don't know if we've talked about this yet on the podcast, but for one, reading through these final chapters, I can't wait to see how this is going to look in the movie. I'm like, mm-hmm. damn, there's so, the so much happens. Yeah. Exactly. So much happens in the Battle of Arakeen, but a lot of it isn't described, and there's a lot of room to really show 
an epic battle. Yeah. Um, we get enough to understand that. But the other thing that I'm looking forward to is, do you remember who's cast as the emperor in the movie? No. Christopher Walken. Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, we underestimated the Fremen. I guess we're going to surrender. Yeah, they get routed so fast. There's really no fight. It's great. Oh, it's so I love when that happens. You know, even though it's this big conclusive battle, it's so, it's it's just a route. They smash them. Yeah. It's yeah. cool. I mean, who that's- plays, I'm really curious as to who's going to play Fenring. Hazemir Fenring is a great character. Ooh. I think they have been cast, but he's I don't a, He's horrifying. We're going to get to him. Fucking Fenring. He's horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm looking up that casting real quick. I've just got to know. Oh, for Fenring, yeah. But um, the other part of this, Matt, as you look this up, is what about the people in the city? That's the thing we have to remember here. The people Arakeen, in the city, yeah. Arakeen... Arakeen, the people of Arakeen have been under the boot of Raban, right? Yeah, yeah. They've been. What'd you find? Um, can't find uh, Fenring. I don't think. I don't think it's been announced yet. Cool. Maybe most of the other characters, but yeah. So think about this. Um, I I like this idea where Stilgar's like "Mm, city people. I don't know about all that. I never knew a city man that could be trusted. And Paul said, "I was a city man myself once." And here's a great quote. I know what you mean still, but the test of a man isn't what you think he'll do. It's what he actually does. These people have Fremen blood. It's just that they aren't, they haven't learned how to escape their bondage. We'll teach them. He goes on to say, um, uh, where is it here? He, he says something about the lawn, about how they've become people, more or less. Yeah. No, there's a, yep. there's a great, great quote not too uh, far after that where he says, it's been... It's been so long since gorillas were effective that the <laughs> mighty have forgotten how to fight them. The Sardaukar have played into That's our it. hands. They have grabbed some city women for their sport, decorated their battle standards with the heads of men who objected, and they've built up a fever of hate among people who otherwise would have looked on the coming battle as no more than a great inconvenience. Indeed. And, and the possibility of exchanging one set of masters for another— the Sardaukar recruit for us, Stilgar. Great fucking point. And that's a very common thing, right? You would see this very often in uh, the ancient world. You would see, it's just a question of why do you want to slaughter your tax base? And (laughs) your tax base doesn't want to be slaughtered. Most of the people didn't have, you know, if, if a territory changed hands between England and France, it wasn't necessarily that the people really cared. Because why they don't have time to care. It's like, okay, great. Now you're the Duke. Okay. Yeah, I got to eat. Who gives a shit? Yeah, it's like, a, <laughs> and sometimes they garden. would and they'd be put down and et cetera, et cetera. But it's just this idea. We go in, no, no, you, we're not going to slaughter everybody. You're us now, Rome, right? You're now Romans. You're Romans with us. Okay, <laughs> cool. I'm into it. And um, that's, that's what you've just described. It's not an inconvenience because there's a fever of hatred. And that is because of Raban. Yeah. That's yeah. because of Raban. Has absolutely crushed them and oppressed them and mm-hmm. united them through their oppression. Their hate is fresh and clear. And this is the line I was fumbling for before. 
Um, Paul said, they know every Sardaukar they kill would be one less for us. You see, gentlemen, they have something to die for. They've discovered their peep. They're a people. Yeah. They're awakened. Yeah. Dude, this is amazing because this goes right back to chapter one. What are you testing me for? To see if you're a human. <laughs> are you a human or are you an animal? That's one of the biggest themes of this entire book. And what it came down to in the box tests is the first thing we see is that we have the gomjabar at your throat. Remove your, it's the high-handed enemy, I believe they call it. And I believe she said, if you withdraw your hand, death will be as swift as the headsman's axe. And she was testing his awareness versus his instinct, right? His thinking brain versus his instinct to withdraw. We talked a lot about this. If you held a gun to an animal's head, I know this is a very dark thing to think about, and then you did something to cause it pain, it wouldn't understand that the penalty may be that you shoot it instead. It would just want to withdraw from the pain, suggesting its instinct is overriding its higher awareness to know about the greater threat, right? Right. And that's really what the first chapter came down to, which is, can Paul be a human being and just allow the pain to wash over him, wash through him, the fear that came along with it, and uh, and show that he had a higher consciousness to where he could he could withstand knowing if he did that he wouldn't fall prey to the other consequences. The fighting your instinct with your higher awareness, which is something that the whole book talks about in becoming human. And I like that. That's not exactly the line here, but saying they've discovered that they're a people, I love that idea. Yeah. They yeah. realize they are more than what they thought they were, and now they're mad. <laughs> it's yeah. cool. Because and it's just an interesting idea, too, that like their oppression at the hand of the Harkonnens has pushed them even closer to to Muad'Dib and his his crusade. Like, you know, it, it, if they if not being crushed, they might have, like Paul saying, kind of remained in a neutral state. But because of that, you know, it, it's like a perfect mix of factors that they're being crushed and oppressed, which is pushing them away from the Harkonnens. And now they have somewhere to go into the arms of Paul and his crusade. Indeed. You know, before there, that, that mix wasn't there. And now Paul offers this like alternative. Mm -hmm. And they are us. We know, you know, we know that within Narakeen, there's tons of Fremen. Silgar right. calls them city folk because that's where they've been for so long. And you would see this. If you recall the uh, the people trying to get water from the Atreides, those Fremen that were within the city walls, not out here in the wild. Right, right. And Jessica was like, you're not going to sell water anymore. That's bullshit. So <laughs> I love this moment in this chapter where we get into this wind and sail stuff, where essentially you have, it reminds me of like wind and sail times where you're running up banners and signaling certain things. What does that mean? And there's this great moment where Paul says, look, if they're going to recognize that the Atreides should be back in fief complete of Arrakis, then they're going to raise our flag. And Gurney's like, they're not going to raise the flag, dude. He's <laughs> they're like, not doing that. He's like, well, let's just see. And what do they do? They run up the Chome flag, to which Paul says, a subtle piece of business. It's the same as the flag of the other ships. I don't understand, says Stilgar, and 
Gurney breaks it down. A subtle piece of business indeed. Had he sent up the Atreides banner, he'd have to live by what that meant. Too many observers about. He could have signaled the Harkonnen flag on the staff, a flat declaration that of Ben, but no. He sends up the chome rag. He's telling the people, Gurney pointed towards space, where the prophet is. He's saying he doesn't care if it's an Atreides or not. It will all be for the Chom prophet. So he's not recognizing Atreides. He's certainly not putting Harkonnen back in charge. It should fall to it should fall to fade, Ralpha. Harkonnen, but it's not. <laughs> the Empress. Right. Um, had this book ended different, I doubt they would have said, okay, now you take over, Fade. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> but I don't think so. Well, and also, I mean, I, I think it, it's just, it's further hammering in the point that the emperor is here, therefore shit's not going well. <laughs> so <Indeed. laughs> he's not coming down here to give the Harkonnens a pat on the back for the good job they're doing. He's down here to be like, you're fucking up and now I got to come fix it. When the great um, houses meet in the land shroud, they're like, uh, Article 47, it's, quote, when shit is not going well, the emperor <laughs> will get in his spaceship and go fix it. <laughs> very, very technical <laughs> legal language there. <laughs> With his legions of badass Sardukar. Here he, here he, shit has hit the royal fan. Prince <laughs> <laughs> Shaddam will be dispatching his, yeah. But uh, yeah, man, this is where uh, it starts to break pretty quick. The gunners are ready. Visibility is about to drop. And uh, he lets Gurney do the honors, right? Doesn't he hand Gurney the... Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. The detonator. The detonator. He, he, gives, he gives Gurney the chance to be Dyson in Terminator 2. <laughs> 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 Fucking click. Maz Dyson is dead. <laughs> um, I also love. I just, just, just think. Try to imagine this as it heats up. They're shouting into the comms because the storm's picking up, so they can't hear, they can't see. And uh, Paul shouts now, and Gurney pushes that trigger, depresses the plunger, and uh, it seemed that a full second passed. I love that. I oh, love yeah. the delay. He hits it, and they're waiting, and then this ripple rumbling sound added to the storm's roar in the uh the fedakin watcher from the telescope appeared beside paul clutching her arm the shield wall is breached muadib the storm is on them our gunners are firing oh, and that's so it badass all it's this happens off. at once <laughs> we yep. are committed he thought we paul are committed yep. we're in it now <laughs> yep and uh in the moment where paul how how Paul sort of narrates, he's like, now they're finding out that they have no shields and they can't leave. <laughs> right? It's good for us. Great. But there's a piece of bad news at the end of this chapter, which is the communications man picks up, uh, Rage, Siege Tabor, Captives Aaliyah, family dead, son. And he's like, wait, what? And we learn that. <laughs> That the CH Tabor was raided, that Aaliyah was, we don't know, families of whoever, dead. The son right. of Muad'Dib. Yeah. Yeah. And Paul just looks and says, my son is dead. My son is dead. Aaliyah captive. He felt emptied a shell without emotions. 
Everything he touched brought death and grief, and it was like a disease that could spread across the universe. Uh, His jihad. And so what I find so interesting about this moment and what comes right after um, is what he says, you know, as it concludes – uh, something as he's thinking about, you know, as this is this news is washing over him, and he's thinking about how much this death and destruction is spreading. He also thinks something seemed to chuckle and rub its hands within him. <laughs> and Paul thought, "How little the universe knows about the nature of real cruelty." And to me, this is one of the biggest moments where I'm like, "There's a lot of moments throughout throughout Dune, which I think are." super interesting where Paul teeters a little bit between am I pre- preventing the oncoming jihad or am I leaning into the oncoming that's, that's, jihad? That's a huge question. I think at the end of the book. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think this is a moment, this is a, of any moment that I can remember from the book. This is a time where I went, Oh, is this what pushes Paul towards hmm. leading the jihad? You know, the death of his son at the hands of these people and him, him, the, starting to think in his head, oh, I'll show them real cruelty. <laughs> the universe <laughs> right. doesn't know real cruelty, and I'll show them. And I was like, damn, dog. Damn, dog. That's some fucking third world dictator <laughs> shit you on right now. <laughs> damn, Plur. How damn, Plur, I'm going show know? them all. <laughs> How little the universe knows about the nature of real cruelty. Is that what you think? You think that that is a, th- that you think that that's a, you think that's a blooming thought of what he will rot upon the universe? Or do you think he's making a more literal connection between the universe not being able to know anything about actual cruelty because it's not a sentient thing? Like, is he going that deep? Hmm. I, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but I interpreted it mostly as a moment of, I wouldn't call it like a moment of weakness, but a moment of Paul being tested and a moment of him tasting mm-hmm. the idea of, of I have so much power at so my disposal now, so much fucking power and so many people behind me that vengeance for this would be pretty easy. Yeah. Like that's something we don't talk about when it comes to the idea of revenge is the ease of being able to do it or not. Like if you're, you know, if Paul's hiding in the desert, you know, like, I mean, hell, we had this example already. Paul's hiding in the desert with his mom before he met the Fremen, not really in a position to take revenge on the Harkonnens for the death of his father. Like you, you are down in the dirt and you got no resources and no power. And now Paul stands at the helm of a gigantic army and a massive storm and a huge attack, which they have the, the advantage on the, the, the moment of surprise and overwhelming and he can be, he's pretty much at the position of like, well, I could kind of snap my fingers and get revenge for this. Indeed. Like and, and, <laughs> it's and, right and, there. And I, and I guess you could make a, you could make a debate about if is it is easy now, but it always wasn't easy. So was the ease of the ability to put revenge on your enemies earned over the course of the novel, which of course has been brutal for him. Right. It's right. a thought to have what, what he would probably He'd probably forego revenge if he could have his family back, his father, et cetera. But the idea of it is, it is pretty wild. Once you get into that power, what does that mean? Or once you've wronged the rights, why would you stop there? That's always the fear. Now that you have this rolling, what, what is a man, if a man's mission is revenge, what happens once it's satiated? Yeah, are they truly fulfilled? Stuff to say. That's why Paul's more deep than revenge. There's more to Paul than that, but it is a piece for of it sure. for sure. Um, yeah. It must be weird because so much of the people responsible, he never has a direct impact on face to face. 
Mm-hmm. Right? It's pretty interesting stuff, man. Good shit. And we mm. close out chapter 46. Yep. With a pasting of the Harkonnen and the Imperial Force. Which brings yeah. us to uh, chapter 47, and let this hit the marker, and it's your turn, sir. And Muad'Dib stood before them, and he said, Though we deem the captive dead, yet does she live. For her seed is my seed, and her voice is my voice. And she sees unto the farthest reaches of possibility. Yea, unto the veil of the unknowable does she see because of me. From Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Irulan. Hmm. I got to imagine he's talking about Lil Sis. <laughs> I think you're right. Lil Sis. <laughs> yeah, she's featured prominently in Chapter 47, isn't she? Dude, yeah. I am very interested in Aaliyah, <laughs> the way she pops Ooh. up. And dude... If I had one complaint about this novel, and there's not many I have, and this may be the only one, is that, man, we took a long time to get back to my boy, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Yeah, that's true. We're back, finally. And he is having a rough fucking He's day. having a tough day. <laughs> <laughs> Supervisor came in, breathing down his neck. He's getting, you know, he's in an Fireside. office right now. He's in the CEO's office, but it's a glass wall, and you can see it just hanging his head low as he's just getting dressed down, mm-hmm. <laughs> just absolutely shredded. It's every it's every cop movie where they go into the lieutenant's office and they shut the door and the blinds get pulled shut. <laughs> Time just, for me to scream at you. You just hear screaming in there, and then they walk out sans badge and gun. <laughs> 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 Even though they're going to still work the case, and they're off hours with their normal pistol from home you know still get the bad guy <laughs> except not vladimir harkonnen he is the bad guy at least one he of them is <laughs> what a fascinating character and what a fascinating end oh dude you know what i really liked about the the opening of this chapter and this this goes actually back to a point you made about the baron um in some previous episodes when we <laughs> talked about some of his chapters um, you know, there's a moment where he says, with covert glances, the Baron had studied the metal walled room and its occupants, <laughs> the nukers, the pages, the guards, the troop of House Sardaukar drawn up around the walls. Um, and he's really just kind of taking in the room and taking in the people. And what I think that really shows, and, and because it's, it's very, in a sense, it doesn't matter for the rest of the chapter, but I think it's that it's still important in the sense that. Baron Harkonnen is great at scanning and assessing an individual, a person, figuring out their motivations, figuring out what their intent, figuring out pretty much everything about them that he can suss out, you know, from observation. He can fly them. Exactly. He figures out, like, what can I do to manipulate them? How many people in the history of the Imperium have ever broken a Souk school trained doctor? Right. (laughs) I mean, the point (laughs) of Souk school training is precisely that. To it's not the, be broken. That's the whole point of them, <laughs> right? <laughs> anyway, continue. Well, no, I mean, I think the, the the thing that it really shows is that he's now in this situation where he has to stand before the emperor and start to mm. answer for everything that's been happening. And all he can do is what he always does. He kind of you know searches the room and assesses who's there and is figuring people out. But as we come to learn throughout the rest of this chapter, his biggest weakness 
was in not being under being able to understand the larger groups at play indeed and in underestimating the fremen and 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 really not His bothering downfall it's, is underestimating the fremen yeah exactly and we really we see the emperor seize on that pretty <laughs> pretty early and we know boy does does the this is uh, the Baron. He really wilts in the face of the Reverend Mother. Really sets him off because they're unscrupulous. They're unbeatable. The, it's, right? it's the antithesis. He can't. He cleans nothing from her. How could he? Right. It's the one person beyond his reproach. And he knows that he can't lie at all in her <laughs> no, presence. Okay. Like, none of that. They call her truthsayer. Truth sayer. <laughs> Can't slip one past her. That's right. And of course, uh, we see, so the whole entourage comes in and it's this big, big deal. Shadam's here. His daughter's here. The Lots say, of pomp the truth and here. There's guild representation here. There's a lot of people showing up. And uh, yeah, my dear Baron, the Emperor had deigned to notice him. The Baron bowed low. I came at your summons, Majesty. Summons, the old witch cackled. Now, Reverend Mother, the Emperor chided, first you will tell me where you sent your minion through Fair Hawat. So that's where this starts. So he wants to know A, where he is, and then what's going on with everything. Mm. What, what happened here? What's happening? <laughs> and what does ba uh, Baron Harkonnen do? The first statement of his report on things? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I I don't know, <laughs> Emperor Sir. Sorry, I don't have anything you require of me. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he doesn't know where Thufir how it is, and he's been gone for five days. Yep, five days now. And he, what, what I believe he says is that he was off trying to infiltrate the camp of That's this right. Fremen fanatic, <clears throat> this Muadib smugglers and and shit too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um. <laughs> <laughs> the this entire thing is pretty wild to watch because usually when we watch the baron at work he's not dealing with somebody so far so much more powerful than him shaddam's so much more powerful than the baron and we know that the baron can command and when the baron's holding court in house harkonnen and doing his thing we can see how intelligent and how clever he is and how he can ply and do all his stuff but in the presence of the emperor, he's very powerful, this emperor. He commands a lot of authority. And the baron knows this, and the baron's very nervous when he starts putting the screws to him. Where are your nephews? Where's Raban? Where's Fade? Where mm -hmm. is everything? And he's like, oh, no, I sent them to inspect the perimeter. And he's just sort of fumbling around. And what's you feel for the baron a little bit here, because this was not his charge. It was Raban's. But he's the Baron of the house, so now he's getting asked the questions. Yeah. He's probably he he's probably somewhere in his head going, well, I don't fucking know. <laughs> I was fucking, this is Raban shit. shit now. Yeah, let's put the shit on autopilot. I don't fucking know. Yep. <laughs> but no, and what's interesting here too is that we we also get a sense of the emperor. You know, we we come to learn in this chapter that the emperor, I would argue, knows more or at least is better at evaluating the fremen uh the big than, picture yeah the big picture he's, he's got a emperor. much clearer yeah. right right he's got a grasp of that picture 
Um, but even he overestimates himself and underestimates the Fremen. Oh, big time. Um, you know, he says the storm won't matter much here in the basin and the Fremen rabble won't attack while I'm here with five legions of Sardaukar. Correct. You know, just totally confident in the, the, the existence of his Sardaukar as being a deterrent. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight major houses, Matt. House Atreides, House Carino, House Fenring. Oh. House Gnaz, House Halleck, House Harkonnen, House Matuli, and House Moritani. That's a lot of houses. There's an entire land shroud. There is uh, a council. There's Chom. There's the guild. There is the might of the Sarukar and all of the Seleucid Secundus troops that they can offer. And here you are on this backwater planet dealing with a, a, a small uprising. You show up in force, you're going to be overconfident. It just makes sense. Yeah. You know, it, it would be like saying you have to go break up that kindergartner fight. And you're like, okay, <laughs> how annoying, but okay. So <laughs> I'll you put on my out, armor. You walk out to the recess, you know, say they're fighting in the middle of the baseball diamond, and then you just see like 50 of them come out of the woods with knives. You're like, what the fuck? I don't think I can kill 50. Children of the corn! I think I'm in trouble, Malachi, Outlander! Right? (laughs) It's a really bad comparison, but just to give you a dumb, dumb view of an an analogous comparison, just this, it's a nuisance. I got to go do this. This is such a pain in the ass, but but I should make a show of this to set everything in order here. But there's still going to be overconfidence on your side. Right, right. I like the Baron's perspective on the court being brought into this. We talked about that in the last chapter. Paul knew it. He brings his women, I think Paul said. But uh, the Baron notices the unlimited wealth and says, he bring, he, he's thinking now, he brings his pages and useless court lackeys, his women and their companions, hairdressers, designers, everything. All the fringe parasites of the court, all here fawning, slyly plotting, roughing it with the emperor here to watch him put an end to this affair to make to make epigrams over the battles and idolize the wounded i love the baron (laughs) this is what i like about him these observations they're so poignant yeah yeah no it's a great moment again there's just that that extreme confidence that total sureness of victory you know i don't even need to be that prepared the presence of my sardaukar alone ensures victory and I can bring the whole the whole circus with me. Mm-hmm. I love this idea too of of the barons. First of all, he's concerned. Does he mean to kill me? He's concerned he may be being executed. So he's really being careful as to what he says and or does here. And I like this idea of the baron thinking about all this courtly nonsense, all these sycophants, all these plotters and schemers, and people are going to write about this and just suck off the tit that is the despair. And the Baron doesn't care about that from a moral standpoint. He just can't stand the weakness of that approach, right? He has contempt <laughs> for this. And all the while, the the Emperor is thinking about the Baron. Ima- imagine him being like, he must think the Baron incompetent because he doesn't know certain things, specific things about this Fremen. Who is the Muad'Dib? A madman, the Baron reassures him. But we know for certain that that's not true, And how do we know that the emperor knows that that's not true? Well, it's from the old crone sitting to his right. (laughs) She's telling him he's dangerous. The Muad'Dib is the Kwisatz Haderach. Let me explain to you what that means. Here's what that means. 
And I like this idea because I like the idea, and this really is going to happen in the next chapter, but I'll tease it here. But this idea that the Bene Gesserit got what they wanted in the Kwisar Chaturach, it wasn't the initial plan. The initial plan was for maybe Fade Rautha to be the, the Kwisar Chaturach, right? Because of the Harkonnen lineage, which is a fact we didn't know in the beginning of the book. We didn't know that Jessica was Harkonnen, was the Baron's daughter. Thus, Paul having the Harkonnen genes in him as well, thus making the Kwisar Chaturach, the breeding, you know, can see into both feminine paths. I like this idea. It's like epigenetics, except more magical in this, which yeah. is this implanted memory of your ancestors can only see the feminine, but the male Kwisar Chaturach will be a male. He'll see into both and he can, and originally it was going to be fade and blah, blah, blah. And these breeding programs, the, the emperor's hip to this. He knows what's going on, whether or not he feels a certain way about it. We're not really sure in this book. Well, I mean, his daughter is undergoing Bene Gesserit training. The training so, I mean, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he is hip to Muad'Dib because he's hip to Mother Mahayam. When you have the the mother superior, as it were, who runs the Bene Gesserit, I believe, telling you what's happening, then you're going to take the Muad'Dib more seriously than the Baron, who just sees him as a nuisance at this point. Because up until now, he hasn't made crazy attacks. And even now... Behind the shield wall of Arakeen, the Baron's problem is his arrogance. Because he's like, yeah, so we've lost some territory between here and there. We're fine. It, it seems as if he feels that way, but he does know we've taken a lot of damage and casualties here, and Raban's really fucked this up, so I might be in trouble. But he doesn't seem overly concerned with the Fremen booting them off the planet, especially when five legions of Sardaukar arrive from the Imperium. He's like, we're fine. Who cares about this madman? We'll have him crucified in a week. He's a rabble. <laughs> who, who is this Wallace? You know? But I'd love, I also just love how uh, we start to get a, a reveal on the emperor being aware of much more than the baron is. Oh, yeah. You know, he, they talk about taking hostages and, you know, the Baron points out something interesting where he says, the Fremen hold a burial ceremony for every captive we take <laughs> and act as though the, such a one were already dead. So, like, taking hostages doesn't matter. They just cut them off. Yeah. Um, but the Emperor just says, so? And perhaps you've never yeah. sought, the, sought the right kind of hostage. And I love the Baron just going, oh, he knows something. Like, he knows something I don't know. <laughs> um, but... From there, he starts to probe uh, the Baron, you know, asking him about, like, do you have any idea who this Muad'Dib could be? Um, and really starts to, to drill into him about, like, all the things he doesn't know. And, and it, it, <laughs> he just really starts to, to reveal how much the Baron has been ignorant of. Indeed. This idea of his people scream his name, the women throw babies and hurl themselves under our knives to open a wedge for the men to attack us. They have no decency. As bad as that is, the Emperor says, tell me, my dear Baron, have you investigated the southern polar regions of Arrakis? The Baron stared up at the Emperor, shocked by the change of subject. But, well, you know, Your Majesty, the entire region is uninhabitable, open to wind and worm. There's not even spice in those latitudes. You've had no reports from space letters that patches of greenery appear there? There have always been reports, says the Baron. Some were investigated long ago. A few plants were seen. Many thopters were lost. Too costly, Your Majesty. It's a place where men cannot survive. So, the Empress said, he snapped his fingers and a door opened at his left behind the throne. Through the door came two Sardaukar, hurting a girl child who appeared to be about four years old. She wore a black abba, the hood thrown back to reveal 
the attachments of a still soat hanging free at her throat. Her eyes were from and blue, staring out of a soft round face. She appeared completely unafraid, and there was a look to her stare that made the Baron feel uneasy for no reason he could explain. Even the old Benny Jesuit Trusser drew back as the child passed and made a warding side in her direction. <laughs> uh, and this is where the emperor clears his throat to to speak. And uh, she speaks. She says, so here he is. He doesn't appear much, does he? One frightened old fat man too weak to support his own flesh without the help of suspenses. I love how the Baron's like, is this a midget? What the <laughs> hell? Like, he's trying to, like, this, this thing talks? Like, it's got such great vocabulary and... <laughs> the child that is not a child. Mm-hmm. He goes, this is your uninhabited South Polar regions. Great human activity. Yeah. yeah. The sister. Yeah. The sister of Paul. We have the sister of Muadi mm-hmm. right here. And so, I mean, that to me also, it told me, unless I'm wrong here in thinking this, um, that the emperor knows the identity of Muad'Dib already. Yeah, like, he's, I think so. He's, I mean, the fact that he says this is his sister means he knows his lineage. Because Mohaim would just tell him. Yeah, true. Mohaim's true. just like, it's Paul Atreides. He's the one. He's the one. Yep. And uh, this this moment where the emperor reveals to the baron that he sent five troop carriers with a light attack force to pick up prisoners. We barely got away with three prisoners and one carrier. Uh, my Sardaukar were almost overwhelmed by a force composed of mostly of women, children, and old men. This child here was in command, in command of one of the attacking <laughs> groups. God, can you just imagine Dude. little tiny Aaliyah leaping onto some guy's back and just stabbing him over I and over know. like a little fucking four-year-old leading the charge? Shit. Fucking crazy. You know what the parents doing right now, Rock? He's training. He's running hills. <laughs> what are you doing? She's just big motivational speech. <laughs> and, no. uh, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, they, they just kind of continuing on that, that they, you know, barely survived, barely got out of there, used, you know, they had to, the Sardaukar had to resort to using their attitudinal jets as flamethrowers. Yeah. That was their only way to push back these old women, children, and, and men, <laughs> um, old men. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, the, the Baron tries to go, you know, okay, well, then we should just attack. I love you. that. You the know Baron. where they are? <laughs> it's we such know a where good they are. move he's such a boy like all right this is where he chums up to him he's like all right i guess we're attacking buddy right he's like let's do it let's kill him let's like, go pal i like how he turns it into it's like you're getting in trouble at work and, and and you're just like all right let's let's go get that stuff done and they're like well, you're still in trouble like let me finish the part where you're in trouble before we go do the thing we said we we're gonna do you know it's like he's trying to get out of trouble like it's, it's great <laughs> yeah you'd but, supposed to be like so, so fight fight we're fighting now right and of course the baron suspects treachery from raban he's done this to me etc cetera, etc cetera. <laughs> dude that leads me into one of my favorite moments from the emperor <laughs> where you go just the way it's written too and this fake dispute with duke leto the emperor dude. purred sinking back into his throne how beautifully you've maneuvered it <laughs> you fuck up you fuck up you and then he tries uh, to ask, silence! I love the silence! Silence! Yep. Meanwhile, you got the Benny Jezra whispering in his ear the whole time. 
<laughs> and then just he just cuts right into him and he says, is it possible, Baron? Could you be as simple-minded as my truth-sayer suggests? Do you not recognize this child, daughter of your ally, Duke Leto? Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, your he's niece. just... Yeah. Hammering home on, like, look at all this shit that I know that your ass doesn't know. <laughs> you are doing a bad job. Uh, By the way, how how messed up is Aaliyah? She's like, make him fearful more. I like this. <laughs> Twist the knife. I like it when he's afraid. <laughs> uh, you know she knows the stories, though. <laughs> I like I was like, who? I'm Aaliyah, daughter of Duke Leto and Lady Jessica's sister of Paul Duke Maudib. My brother has promised to have your head atop his battle standard, and I think he shall. And I like that. I like how the emperor's just like, quiet down, will you? <laughs> oh man! But no, such, dude. Such what? What I like about this is Aaliyah is so outside of this. She's so fearless. Yeah, she's yeah. not afraid of any of these people, which is wild. Think about that, right? Yeah, no. And, Fear and, and is I a mean, theme I, in the book. She ain't afraid of shit. No fear, zero fear, none. Um, what the fuck? and and we see. I would argue that we see why in the next section here, where yep. the interaction that she has with uh, the Reverend Mother, where you know the Reverend Mother, um, you know the he the the where does it say? She says, "Get out of my mind." When she's yeah. pointing at Aaliyah, and she even says, "You don't understand, Majesty, not telepathy. She's in my mind. She's like the ones before me, the ones who gave me their memories." She stands in my mind. She cannot be there, but she is. I love it. And so with the, with the snap of her fingers, Aaliyah is literally standing in this woman's consciousness, a, able to access all the same memories as a reverend mother um, because of, you know, uh, Jessica's consumption of the water of life while she was pregnant. It makes you feel as if she's something beyond a Kwisah Chatterach. Because it appears that not just not just ancestral memory, but in her conscious as she's alive, standing in her brain. I like the way that's written. Like yeah. just like it's a library of thought that she can pick through. And Mahaim <laughs> seems unable to combat this. Right. She just literally can't even stop her from entering her head. <laughs> and I love the the emperor's response where he's like, what others? What's this nonsense? He doesn't like, know. What, <laughs> what is all this Benny Jesuit bullshit y'all are yelling about? <laughs> <laughs> Can't you see him yelling at this reprobate? <laughs> I got a fucking big fat dude to chide. <laughs> what are y'all yelling about? <laughs> this is why we're here, because of the choice we made to put Raban in charge. Now look at this place. <laughs> but I like how this turns quickly into Mohayim's desire for Aaliyah to be killed. She's actually borderline begging Shaddam to kill the, the kid, to toss her into the storm. Yeah, yeah. She's concerned with her. This this is what I mean. This is where Mohayim can't explain this. 10,000 years of breeding program, I believe is a conservative estimate, thousands of years. Yeah. And all this predictive planning and Aaliyah, a girl, is something where Mahayim's like, get rid of her. That's how dangerous Aaliyah seems to the mother immediately, to where she's willing to just kill this kid and not even explore what this could mean as far as the missionaria protectiva goes or any of that stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, she, she, I, I think she sees her as too inherently unstable. I kind right. of, I, I, the vibe I got from it was kind of the the same as like the Anne Rice vampires. You know, you can't turn a kid like that's just like no, mm-hmm. you don't turn a kid into a vampire. They're completely unstable, and I feel like she kind of has the same same sort of apprehension about her that she's like this is completely outside of anything we understand and she has power beyond you know that of a child like who knows what she could become to quote armand it is forbidden to turn one so young <laughs> so young it is forbidden <laughs> <laughs> but this this kind of gets into this argumentation here where they're back and forth uh, the Baron's interrupting the Emperor, and um, Majesty, I know nothing of, interrupt me again, and you'll lose the powers of interruption forever. And uh, Ali's like, I can't read minds, but one doesn't need telepathy to read your intentions, right? Yeah, yeah. No, and, it's, it, and this is this is the part where Aaliyah, I, and I wonder, I wonder your perspective on this, because Aaliyah has some level of prescience i think that mm-hmm. is that is uh, you know implied um but she just flat out says you know you know when they're talking about when the emperor is talking about how he could rally his forces and just reduce the planet to to nothing you know alia is just like yeah my brother comes now and even an emperor may <laughs> tremble before muadib for he has the strength of righteousness and Indeed. heaven smiles upon him uh and so she knows he's coming already Indeed. Yeah, I mean, if she's standing in Mohayim's head, she's she's probably certain. It, it would I, I would venture to believe that she exists in Paul's head too at times if she wants to. There is, Doesn't yeah, that, I think it's actually for that in the next chapter. I was just about to say it's in the yep, it's the next chapter where where it's it's a little vague because it, I don't want to jump into it just yet, yeah, but it's a, it's a little that, but. vague the nature of it. But it seems like she can in some way communicate with Paul through time. So yes. she has that, that ability. Yes, correct. Yep. So, uh, yeah, um, my brother comes is her warning. And uh, it's at this point where the, they, they're like, oh, the, the shield, the shield happens. This is time to the destruction of the shield wall, the arrival of the storm. There's an explosion. The, the Sardaukar uh, want to get him out of there, right? Let's, I, I believe they want to get the Sardaukar are leaping to positions at the doors. The emperor stood in front of the throne, right hand pressed to right ear, right? He's receiving information in his ear as he speaks as to the attack. So yeah, the Sardaukar are like, oh shit. And that's when they're like, oh, throw her into the storm, get rid of her. And that's what, that's what Mahaim's saying. And then this forces Aliyah to run. And she runs towards the Baron. The Baron thinks he has grabbed her. I have her majesty, right? He's looking for any out here, anything to get favor. <laughs> and he just goes, <laughs> and down he goes to the floor. I'm sorry, grandfather. You've met the Atreides Gom Jabbar. Dead. I was super so fast. glad. Super fast. I was so glad we got to see Agam Jabbar in action. Indeed. I mean, he just Seconds says, he's dead. Oh, he rolled sideways in his suspensors, a sagging mass of flesh supported inches off the floor with head lolling and mouth hanging open. Wow. Done. Quick. Yeah. It's amazing. As swift as the headman, headsman's axe, as Mahayam promised. 
<laughs> These people are insane. The emperor <laughs> snarled. I like how he's Fuck equipped this. to the ships. Now it's a question of we got to get in the ships, get up above this mess. Yeah, and yeah, oh they, no, they planned a ball, a ball of lightning bounced away from the wall. There crackled. The smell of burn insulation swept through. The shield, the outer shield is down. They dot dot day. And that's when they realize the, shut, the noses of the ships have been shot off. The dust is boiling through the room. It's just chaos. And Aaliyah bounces out of there. Oh, so good. So good. Uh, yeah. they, they're totally pushed back. They're totally retreating already. Into the ship. I just love how fast it breaks out, how fast it happens. Like, you know, we kind of see this overlap in time because we see Paul and Gurney detonate, you know, this. And then we get to see it from the other perspective of the before and after the detonation from within the Imperial side. Yeah. And just Fremen on worms. Dude. Push into the city. That's amazing. Oh, it's so good. I I actually, I know it's a little bit long, but I want to read a paragraph of this because, because I think this, I mean, this is kind of what we were talking about earlier of like, there's a lot of action and there is description of it, but the description doesn't go for very long and doesn't get into a lot of detail. But even what we get in this description paints such a picture and it paints such a picture of a tremendous and lightning fast battle. Um, and I think that's just, it's just so fucking good. Um, it says the plane surged with figures in combat, <laughs> Sardaukar and leaping gyrating robed men who seemed to come down out of the storm out of the sand haze came an orderly mass of flashing shapes, great rising curves with crystal spokes that resolved into the gaping mouths of sandworms, a massed wall of them, each with troops of Fremen riding to the attack. They came in a hissing wedge, robes whipping in the wind as they cut through the melee on the plain. And onward toward the Emperor's hutment, they came while the house, the, while the house Sardaukar stood awed for the first time in their history <laughs> by, an, by an onslaught their minds found difficult to accept. Ah, oh, that's so good. So yep. good. Might I just well. can't wait to see just droves, lines of sandworms just running and, and charging towards this place, just covered in Fremen. Yep. That's and it continues, in the shock of comparative silence within the ship, the emperor stared at the wide-eyed faces of his suite, seeing his oldest daughter with the flush of exertion on her cheeks, the old truthsayer standing like a black shadow with her hood pulled about her face, Finding at last the faces he sought, the two guildsmen. They wore the guild gray, unadorned, and it seemed to fit the calm they maintained despite the high emotions around them. The taller of the two, though, held a hand to his left eye. As the emperor watched, someone jostled the guildsman's arm. The hand moved, and the eye was revealed. The man had lost one of his masking contact lenses, and the air stared out a total blue, so dark as to be almost black. Very cool. Because them motherfuckers are addicted to spice. Deep Deep. addiction. (laughs) And that's when they, that's, it's at this point where the emperor always in control, always knowing what's going to happen, having the fates of men in his hands, worlds. And now he's not sure what's going to happen next. That has to be a quite unnerving feeling for a man who's always in so much control. Yeah, 100%. The man who thinks he controls the universe. 
And it's at this point where the emperor reaches up his sleeve for the ace and he says, I need Count Fenring. <laughs> Summon him. Yep. And Fenring is a murder machine. Oof. He's an assassin. He's super powerful. I mean, he's the emperor's assassin. So there we go. He's, he's a horrifying man. And that, uh, that brings us to the very final chapter, Matthew. The end. He was warrior and mystic, ogre and saint, the fox and the innocent, chivalrous, ruthless, less than a god, more than a man. There's no measuring Muad'Dib's motives by ordinary standards. In the moment of his triumph, he saw the death prepared for him, yet he accepted the treachery. Can you say he did this out of a sense of justice? Who's justice, then? Remember, we speak now of the Muad'Dib who ordered battle drums made from his enemies' skins. The Muad'Dib who denied the conventions of his ducal past with a wave of the hand, saying merely, I am the Kwisar Chararach. That is reason enough. From Maracas Awakening by the Princess Irulan. Cool. <clears throat> Sounds like a bit of a jihad, if you ask me. <laughs> what I like about this chapter is, is I think it, it also brings some more themes into this, which is there's this one moment where earlier in the novel, after a successful fight or something, there's this moment where Paul says to somebody, I think it's Silgar, he goes, I didn't even withdraw my knife, but people will say I killed 50 today. Remember? <laughs> right, I do so, remember that. So part of me wonders, is this an interpretation by somebody? Is this what yeah. somebody thinks happened? Did he make skins out of the drum, out of his enemies? The Paul we know, probably not, but I guess that's the point. We don't, do we know, do we not know? What will they say? And I think that's, I mean, the last sentence of this chapter is what will be said about us. We will be, we will be the wives. Mm. And that's a huge theme of this book is what will they say about us? And, and, and will it be accurate what they say about us? And I just like that right. that's put forward right here, right? Warrior mystic, ogre saint, fox innocent, chivalrous ruthless, all these counterpoints. And that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. He is all and, of I mean, these it, things. Exactly. I mean, that's the foundation of a myth that it, that it, that it is kind of up for contention and people have different points of view on it, have different stories about it. And I think, you know, the idea of like for the, the example given, like the idea of him ordering battle drums made from the skins of his enemies, that could have been something that happened, but maybe not under his orders, but then was still attributed to him. Right. By, by other people that like that is all it was all done under the purview of Muad'Dib like and that's just that's how legends are attributed that's how these stories get get made and get bigger indeed and I love the idea that he's in the Arakeen governor's mansion this is where he lived yeah where they first arrived on this is on where Arrakis. they first arrived from yeah one of the first chapters if not the first chapter oh no no it comes a little later when they get there and they, he's looking out the window and seeing everybody and yeah, understanding the lay of the land and then going into this place and where are we going to put the bull head and the, <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredible. And I like that we're just seeing mop up. This is 
over. Yeah. Yeah. Victory is, has been declared. <laughs> That's it. I remember the day we first came here with your father, Gurney said. He glanced around at the beams in the high slitted windows. I didn't like this place then, and I like it less now. One of our caves would be safer. I love this, because Stilgar on his heels says, spoken like a true Fremen. <laughs> I like this idea that Stilgar is noticing this in Gurney, and we as the reader go, wait a minute. It's crazy to think that Gurney's saying this. Why is he saying this? Because he's become accustomed to this lifestyle? Is he saying it because it's it's a haunting place full of memory where he was unable to protect Leto? Is it all of the above? Is it none of the above? Is it something else? And I like I like that he doesn't feel a sense of belonging here anymore. I think that is wild. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it comes to the their their experiences have shaped them, and they as much as they've shaped the Fremen into this massive fighting force with a cause, you know, they've been shaped by the Fremen as well, and that they their whole worldview has kind of shifted. Yeah, I like this idea that Paul calls this place a symbol. Touch nothing. Just make sure there are no Harkonnen people or toys around, right? <laughs> hunter, no, no, no hunter killers. Traps floating around yeah. trying to kill you and uh yeah they just they start walking through this place and talking and discussing some things this does cheney know does my mother know do they know about our dead son all of this stuff and it gets into the <laughs> most of this novel there are two points in this novel that i can think of when paul refers to the costs of Oh, maybe the first one was Leto, the second one was Paul, and then the third one was Paul again. This moment of money versus manpower. We saw mm-hmm. it very early when Leto's like, let the let the harvester go. Yeah. Rescue the men. And Paul did a little bit earlier, but now Paul's saying, Oh, nothing money won't repair the storm damage. Except for right. the lives, my lord, Gurney says. And then he wonders, when did an Atreides worry first about things when people were at stake? It's a sign to me that was, that's another, there are a lot of moments like this in this final chapter where we see, I would argue, at least a slight shift in Paul, you know, there, there, and not only just in him internally, like his own point of view, his own desires, but a little bit of a shift of how people perceive him as well. Like that's all, it's all starting to take shape and change. Um, and, you know, again, interestingly, too, right after that, Paul could only focus his attention on the inner eye and the gaps visible <laughs> to him in the time wall that's, that still lay across his path. Through each gap, the jihad raged away down the corridors of the future. Yeah. So that, I think, is another really interesting moment that signals this kind of change in Paul, or at least a possible change in Paul. Um, this idea that, you know, the battle is done. The The battle of Arakeen is over and um, Paul and the Fremen have won. And now in his prescience, what he can see is nothing but the possibility of further jihad, the thing he's been trying to avoid. Um, so that the, avoiding that or averting, you know, that outcome is still to be seen. It's still to be decided. Indeed. I, and I want to continue that because, when you talk about change or perspective, there's this moment where 
Paul looks at the chair, right? The, the chair in the hall, the chair that once was his father's. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, it was only an object to rest his weariness and conceal it from the men. He sat down, pulling robes around his legs, loosening his still suit, his still suit at the neck. That's a very small paragraph that may seem meaningless, but it has a lot of meaning to me because nothing more than a chair. It's funny that he doesn't feel any type of emotion about his departed father. He's like, yeah, it held my father once. Now, really, it's just, I'm tired. I want to sit down. Like, written with better prose than I'm describing, but when you boil it down, that's almost what Herbert's saying here. He's saying, look, (laughs) it once held his father. He's now just a place to rest his weariness and not let the men know he's tired. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, he feels nothing. There's no memory. There's no reflection upon his father sitting there. It's just a brief acknowledgement, a very logical acknowledgement that this was a place where his father would have sat and did. And he's now sitting there to rest himself and really not reflecting on his father beyond that at all. And we've heard very little reflection about Leto from Paul in these final chapters. And I think that's pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, again, I think perspective wise, it shows that Paul has been kind of naturally so due to his experience, due to the prescience and the the spice and the combination with the water of life, all of those <laughs> things. Um, you know, they have led him to kind of focusing on the future more than the past. Um, and I, I feel like we see that in, in the lack of his thoughts about his father and, you know, heredity and, and the, the, the ducal line of heritage and all this stuff. All, that's all kind of symbols of the past. And Paul is Echoes. very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like he's looking towards the future and towards future possibility. Um, and that's where like all of his attention is focused. And, and I feel like that's kind of a, it's a moment or of a symbol of that. It's a great way to say it too, because, I always like to use, uh, it's no secret that I fancied myself and, and still do, even though I've been in hiatus for years, uh, a bit of a storyteller, a role player. I like to write and, and run stories. And I always like to use the word echo to describe uh, anything vampire related, an echo of a former, an echo of humanity. It's just, if you think of an echo as these concentric circles around you, and many of them just getting bigger and bigger, or maybe smaller and smaller as their volume dips off. You yell into a cavern, hey, 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 hey. As that volume starts to diminish, I just imagine that each ring of those diminishing sounds is this memory of Leto, and it's just getting further and further away from him. This echo of something that will soon be gone, because Paul is a Fremen, and yes, he he is an Atreides, but it almost seems like he's only an Atreides in terms of when he needs to act with any type of authority to know what his rights are as a person who is the legitimate Duke of Atreides, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But that's not, it, you would probably challenge that identity for him in his thoughts, to simply sit in his dad's old chair and to not think much about it, I think says a lot about where he's at mentally. I like the way you described it too, whereas he's thinking more of the future. Yeah, because those echoes are getting more and more faint in his ear. They're just yeah. not as, they don't matter as much anymore. And we're going to see Jessica's perspective on this too, because we're going to come to Jessica 
as she starts to walk around this place. And we know that this was her home that she lived in with a man she loved. Yeah. But, yeah. um, you know, he asks Gurney to sing. Gurney's a bit, you know, they sing about the child and it's a sad moment for Paul closing his eyes, forcing the grief out of his mind. Um, but this moment where he comes to the presence of Aaliyah and his awareness, I have, uh, we hear of all the uses of time vision, this was the strangest, he states, quote, I have breasted the future to place my, I think this is Aaliyah speaking. Yeah. Yes. I have breasted the future to place my words where only you can hear them, Aaliyah said. Even you cannot do that, my brother. I find it an interesting play. And oh yes, I've killed our grandfather, the demented old baron. He had very little pain. I like that because it shows her intelligence, but also still that she's a child. He had very little pain, <laughs> as if Paul cares. <laughs> right, right. It's it's almost like something that a child would repeat to another adult when the child first experiences the death of, say, a grandparent. Mm. It's yeah, almost I didn't like even a, think about that. Right? It's like a little tack on, like, yeah, they're gone, but you know, Papa had very little pain. Like it's like a comfort you tell children. <laughs> or or anyone for that matter. But no, dude, right after right after that is another moment of I would argue Paul kind of confirming his legendary status among the men, you know. <laughs> they they as soon as Stilgar comes over to to kind of like give him some news and get him to kind of arouse again, um he just immediately cuts him off and says you found the body of the old baron. And they're all instantly taken aback, like, Indeed. oh, how did he know? How did he, what, what could he do? Um, you know, all of them are, <laughs> are kind of in awe of him, which we see a lot of that in this chapter, that his men at this point, after, after the victory of this battle, view Paul with such a reverence and such a, like, all, they, they almost like treat him like he's a divinity. Like, Indeed. <laughs> Like he is, he is like, like the opening Thank of the chapter. Thank you, said, Missionaria Protectiva. Yeah, big time. Been that's making a, use of that shit. That's the Benny Gesserit doing that and Paul knowing to exploit it on some level. Yeah. Yeah. For their benefit. Is he exploitive <laughs> of the people? Probably a little bit, isn't he? Even if I mean, he, even if it's righteous, that's still exploitive at the same time on some level. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You're still getting people to throw their lives at a cause and, yeah. and die for it. <laughs> it's possible in a hundred years, to, well, we don't know unless we decide to keep reading, but in a hundred years, will the Fremen be better off as a result of Paul's interference into their life? Maybe, maybe not. Who's to say? Yeah. Yeah. That's probably all part of the darkness that he can't quite see. Right. I do like that. The twisting paths, as it were. But uh, they uh, they want to make terms. They the emperor wants reassurances. Excuse me, I can't talk. He wants reassurances that he'll be safe. Paul invokes again imperial uh, lawful terminology to suggest you will in fact be safe. He has my word. He's he can parlay as it were. This is a this is a right he has. He will be safe. I swear it with my life. Right. And so, it, again, that's another interesting, I think, cultural kind of moment where when they're dealing with this captive Sardaukar that they want to give the message to the emperor, um, you know, Paul says, I swear it by this. And he yes. holds up his his ducal signet, the ring on his hand that it was his father's. Because I think and it's interesting because Paul knows that a Sardaukar, an imperial soldier, is only going to respect the authority of of royal lineage mm -hmm. of you know you're you're a proper duke i i have inherited that that ducal throne 
you need to take this message and obey. Whereas that ducal signet means fucking jack shit to Fremen. Like they don't, they don't care. care. They don't care about royal imperiums and the, 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 the formalities and the authorities that are supposed to be looked to. They don't give a shit about that. And Paul, I think arguably doesn't either. He just uh, is aware that he needs to use that still. I think that was my point a moment ago, which is his idea is he seems to be just utilizing it for purposes of any type of lawful plying he can do. Right. Right. Exactly. And he knows it'll work. It's a convention law. It's a, it's under the convention. I Duke of a great house, Imperial kinsman, give my word both under the convention, um, lay down your arms. I swear to your safety. Did you believe Paul at this point in the novel when you were reading it? I, I did. Yeah, I, 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 I was still very much like, I think Paul is, and I mean, we've seen it throughout the novel. He's the kind of person to publicly, you know, in front of the crowds of his supporters and, and his, you know, fanatical Fremen to publicly avow things and, and make yeah. them known. And I'm like, Paul's not going to just do some shysty, like, oh, let's just go in there and murder everybody. No. Like he wants that's to put, shit. That's Harkonnen shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he wants to bring the emperor out for all to see and for terms to be made in front of the world. Like, I think it's important. He he's very aware of the power of ritual and symbol, indeed, uh, to people. And you know, the emperor needs Especially to be alive. Friend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when if they can pull the emperor in front of everybody and change hands of power, you know, in front of the world, it, then it becomes undeniable. There's no there's no arguing about well, he did it underhandedly or he just you know murdered them or whatever. It's like no, <laughs> here it is in front of all of us, indeed. So we get to this great moment where uh, Paul is thinking about his mother and how she oh, yeah. misses Caladan, a place where, it, you know, uh, where it still goes like, wait, water falls from the sky? This is crazy. Yeah. It just falls out no, of the sky. This is <laughs> such a good moment, such yeah. a good moment, because, you know, Stilgar is like so wowed and awed by that, the idea of a planet where water falls from the sky and... The fact that their their leader is from that place, mm -hmm. I think, also holds significance. But that moment right after where it says this comes right that, on the tail of what you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Like in that instant, Paul saw how Stilgar had been transformed from the Fremen Nabe to a creature of the Lisan Al Gabe, a receptacle for awe and obedience. Oof. It was a lessening of the man, and Paul felt the ghost wind of the jihad in it. I have seen a friend become a worshiper. He God, had. that's fucking excellent. It was one excellent. of my favorite passages it's of this entire book. So lonely. Exactly. That's exactly. super lonely. That's, that's tragic in a sense. Stilgar, this great man, this great Fremen who, yeah. who lives such an honorable life, you would say, to suddenly in the eyes of Paul, be seen as a creature of the Lisan al-Gaib, just somebody who is a worshiper, no longer a friend. I mean, mm -hmm. that is the price you pay for what you've done. Yeah, yeah. For In being a rush so... of loneliness, right? Paul glanced yeah. around the room, noting how proper and on view his guards had become in his presence. He sensed <laughs> the settled prideful competition among them, each hoping for notice from Muad'Dib. Oof. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure. So good. <laughs> exactly. Can't fuck up now. Yep. They're all looking at me. 
Muadib from all, uh, Muadib from whom all blessings flow, he thought. And it was the bitterest thought of his life. Of his life. They sense that I must take the throne, he thought, but they cannot know I do it to prevent the jihad. And I think this is probably the greatest success of this book, is putting forth this idea that he wants to take the throne to prevent jihad. And he's, he's not, he's struggling to see, the irony of Paul is that he seems to be struggling to see the irony of his own lack of wisdom here, which is I take the throne to prevent it, perhaps not realizing that. What do you think is going to happen next with the Fremen? What do you <laughs> they're think gonna they're going to stop? What are they going to do now? They worship you as a god emperor. There's many injustices. Why? What makes him think they're going to stop exactly? It's, it's, watching Paul fail to see this is something I love about the, the character. Yeah. Yeah. Taking I do the think, throne may cause it. Exactly. Exactly. He's not, and I mean, I don't, I both don't blame him no. for thinking this because he, he's, he's in this moment, you know, literally realizing how in awe of him, all his people are, how devoted they are to him, how they see him as greater than a, just a regular man. And they'll follow him to the ends of the universe because of that fact, he's like, well, I'm the only person they're going to follow and who they're going to listen to when I say stop. Like, I get that reasoning where of I'm course. like, uh, he's, he's thinking that like, well, I can tell them to stop. They'll listen to me. So that's what I, I need to take the throne and take power to do that. Um, but it's, at the same it, time, if I, if I can jump in there, it's funny because that's such a tyrant's flaw, right? And I'm not saying yeah. Paul is a tyrant, but it's this idea that I know the best way, right? The, it's the great Tom Paine quote, the, 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 in the name of goodness, the most greatest evils have been perpetuated, right? <laughs> right. It's this idea like I can, and I butchered that, but it's on my Facebook, I'll look at it. But it's this idea, it's this idea that Paul thinks, oh, okay, Paul's probably doing one of these, wiping the sweat from his head going, Whew, at least it's me in charge. I got <laughs> right. control, and that's what he thinks, yeah. Maybe maybe he does, but like you said, the very people who go from friend to worshiper that become creatures of the creatures of Lisa and Elgib, who uh, who have respect goes to awe and obedience, uh, reverence, as you said. What makes you think that it's just a very dangerous game he's playing? It's a slippery slope in which suddenly they become fervor. Their fervor outweighs something that he thinks. They go, it goes beyond him. It could. Why well, stop here, like you were saying? It's, it's a succinct way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. It's got a lot of momentum, and that momentum needs to be directed somewhere. <laughs> Indeed. Now, I want to shift to Jessica for a moment. Jessica had entered the Great Hall, wondering why the place refused to fit itself snugly into her memories. Great sentence. <laughs> it continues. It remained a foreign room, as though she had never walked here. Never walked here with her beloved Lado. Never confronted a drunken Idaho here. Never, never, never. Pause. Dude. That. Okay. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that's a great moment, but also how did we never, ever, not even once, 
pick up on how funny a name of Drunken Idaho would be. Drunken Idaho is a great name. Drunken Idaho. Yeah. Ah, fuck. (laughs) We missed that. Last chapter, we thought of it. Damn it. We're normally better at those corny jokes. So, (laughs) the difference between Jessica entering the Great Hall and Paul entering the Great Hall is that it, it would appear in this moment of POV from Jessica that she's considering this. The past. She's considering it and wondering why nothing's there emotionally. It doesn't even cross Paul's mind. Yeah. It's an observation. Yeah. Dad's chair, I'm tired, sit. And now we see a, a feminine perspective, which is to reflect upon it and then wonder why the feeling isn't there. That's sad. That might be more sad, actually. Yeah. She even says, you know, there should be a word for memories that deny themselves. <sighs> it's a great line, too. God, this dude can write. <laughs> Newsflash, guy in LSG says Herbert can write. (laughs) Frank Herbert, good writer, true or not? That's why we're still reading his book 55 years later. But um, what's Aaliyah up to, Matt, in this chapter? (laughs) You know. Stabbing helpless dying guys? (laughs) Out doing what any good Fremen child should be doing in such times. (laughs) Killing enemy wounded and marking their bodies for the water recovery teams. Again, can you How just is imagine that done? Is that with a spray paint bottle? Is that with a spray paint bottle and a knife? <laughs> this you one know, it's still moving. Stab, 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 stab. Red X on his head with a paint can. <laughs> can you just fucking imagine? Like, I forget what it's called, but that little that pokey dagger that knights use to finish off each other in mesiocord. A mesiocord. She's just walking around. <laughs> and going, no, please. And just pushing it through their eye, a four-year-old. <laughs> Fuck. He's really scared. Stab, 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 stab. Stab, stab, stab. <laughs> Except they're real shallow. She's not that strong. <laughs> Damn it. Damn. She probably She's probably using a Chris knife. Let's be real. That's true. Yeah. Using that fucking shy halud tooth. Shy halud tooth. <laughs> Does your shy halud tooth ache at night? Sorry. Um, <laughs> she does this out of kindness, to be to be clear. Matthew, just as a yeah. mercy. Know, isn't it odd how we misunderstand the hidden unity of kindness and cruelty? Says Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's another get disturbing too, thought. But too, you're probably too, right. He's going into some real goth philosophy, man. <laughs> Hugging might as well be stabbing. <laughs> they tell men strange stories of you, Paul. They say you've got all the powers of legend. Nothing can be hidden from you that you see where others cannot. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, Paul does a little bit of cry in this chapter. How would you like to see billions and billions of lives, huh, Mom? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the Quizach Hotrock. You should fear me. <laughs> yeah. Uh she she even goes on to say, you know, you once denied to me that you were right. Quizach's Hatterack. And he says, I can deny nothing anymore. The Emperor and his people come now, they'll be announced any moment. And that leads us into, you know, the... My future bride will be among them? (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) What about Cheney? What are you talking (laughs) about? (laughs) And and Jessica says, don't make the mistake your father made. Um, And is that that to be the idea of, like, his true love was kept a concubine and unmarried? Is that what that's supposed to mean? It took me by a little bit of surprise. Um, You're... Father, what? Well, what did his, what did Dad do? 
That's yeah. That's that's kind of what I was like. I was like, what did she? What did he do? <laughs> Never marry Jessica? Is that what she's referring to? I think so. Yeah. And that's his fear: is that she he won't marry Cheney, and it'll be a regret for him. Yeah, a mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Which is hilarious because that whole thing went against Benny Gesserit wishes when they produced Paws and as a son. Right, because that's what Leto wanted, so that's what Jessica did. And Mahayim throws her hands up, like, "Well, there goes our Quizar Tatarag dummy. It wasn't supposed <laughs> to be. We're supposed, you're supposed to have a girl child." <laughs> so in comes the entourage: Sardaukar, Humming, <laughs> Whistling Dixie, <laughs> Whistling Dixie, <laughs> on the way in, trying to keep spirits high. <laughs> Singing their song. Paul has that weird moment where he wonders if, if Gurney will become a creature as well, if he'll lose a friend. He's a little distracted by his thoughts. And uh, in they you come. You know, on that point real quick, yeah. I I am less concerned about Gurney ever taking that view of Paul because he's known him since he was a child. Right. And, and I, I think him having seen that early vulnerability and knowing that Paul is just a man, like at the end of the day, he's a mortal person and he's been a part of teaching him. Like, I think he's got enough perspective on Paul where that's not going to be an issue. I can in a sense. Yeah. Yep. So there is a moment where Paul is reflecting on the guild. As, as all these people roll in, there's this massive entourage. Imagine this column of people headed by the emperor himself, his daughter, and a bunch of people in tow, guild representation, etc. And Paul reflects upon the guild, and he says, the force, he doesn't say this, but the force that had specialized for so long that it had become a parasite, unable to exist independently of the life upon which it fed. They had never dared grasp the sword, and now they could not grasp it. I love that That's idea. So that they yeah. can't even begin to understand how to grasp the sword that they've never decided to because they've always been reliant on this one thing, this the error of specializing in just the melange. Yeah. And the error of, you know, not exp- in a sense, not exploiting their own monopoly. Like, and it, it, he's, he's basically saying they never dared grasp the sword, but they could have. Mm-hmm. Like, they oh, could easily. have taken... They could have literally, you know, put a chokehold on the on space travel and said, "We're in charge. <laughs> We're in charge now. We control they, space travel, and that's that." It's funny you say that because I think they thought they did that, but they didn't have the sword in hand, and that's the yeah. problem. Is that they they essentially know that everybody in the Imperium wants the spice to continue. That was what they thought was the sword. But when it really came down to the sword, which is I have the power to destroy a thing, therefore I control a thing, that's a, that's, an, that's, a, that's a factor that the guild didn't consider. Because to destroy it to them is slow suicide. Space travel slows down. People don't live as long. Everything changes without a And rise. literally the guild members, the current guild members will fucking die. <laughs> Probably just so- die. They're so addicted to spice at this point that going off of it is lethal. Indeed. The guild navigators, gifted with limited prescience, had made the fatal decision, colon, they'd chosen always the clear, safe course that leads ever downward into stagnation. What a great message in this book. 
the clear safe course leads to stagnation. Right. It's a good thing course, to remember. A course with no risk at all is a course that goes nowhere. Indeed. Let them look closely at their new host, Paul thought. But that idea, oh, we have, a, they probably thought they had some kind of de facto monopoly because they're like, we run the ships. And do you want us to deny you ships? Because your world will become destitute. So you need us. <laughs> oh yeah, I guess we do. And then one man goes, fuck you. I'll destroy <laughs> it all. And they're like, wait, what? Really? Will you? <laughs> you can You can do that? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> huh. I'm trying to tie this back to the hand in the box. Let's see if we can. Ooh. You keep your hand in the box to take the temporary pain to avoid the death stroke. Is there a comparison here with Paul's willingness to destroy this? Right? Is he, is is there a comparison with that type of thinking? Like you never you didn't have enough right the the, the box test is awareness versus instinct. Did did the guild lack the awareness? Are they failing the box test because they lack the awareness to know that somebody may be willing to leave their hand in the box forever. You know what I'm saying? To just yeah. take it. Yeah. Maybe yeah. they maybe they lacked the, the prescience, limited as it was, to know that what if somebody was just willing to say no more? They couldn't have even have fathomed this idea. Right. Because like you said, they were they were they were living in a paradigm of everybody needs the spice. That's right. We need it the most, yep. but everybody needs it. It's a, yep. it's the commodity. So it's always going to be here. It's always going to be in demand and we'll always get what we need of it. And yeah, the idea of somebody just going, fuck it. It's not a commodity anymore. I'm taking it away. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just never crossed their, their mind. It, it, the idea is like, imagine if gas came from one big Island. Yeah. Exactly. And a guy had a lever and he said, I'll sink this fucking island. No, you won't. You'll condemn (laughs) everyone you know to to darkness as well. Clearly you won't do that. Just, you're there to cut the grass. You're there to feed the animals on the island. You know, we come, we get the gas, we we fly people, we fly around, we keep your house profitable. You just cut the grass. (laughs) What do you mean you're going to sink the island? Why would you do that? Are you... Whoa, you're going to do that? Like, it just didn't even occur to them. It's wild. Yeah. No, that's cool. We find Thuf- out uh, yeah. Thufir Hawat uh. is amongst the Imperial retinue. Um, God, this is sad. It is sad. You know, he gives the old hand signs to say he's been working with the Harkonnens and thought you were dead, says he's to be left among them. And so says- he... he he carried a poison needle for the for the duke, but he just wanted to stand tall before Paul one more time. Oof. With honor. Yeah. With and, honor. And then take his own life. Because, well, sadly, with the Baron dead, with Raban dead, which is something we learned, Raban is dead, he was torn apart by people, by the Fremen. They cut his head off. If oh, he, Raban? Yeah, he got his head cut off. By the oh. in, in the city, they're like, kill that guy. Kill that guy. He, he got Saddam Hussein when shit went bad, basically. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. That's what happens. But um now he just so so I get why I'm saying why I'm saying this because Thufer is gonna die. He's yeah. not getting the antidote anymore. He's condemned to poisonous death, so he takes his own life with a needle. 
but not before he stands in front of the Duke. And I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. Wanted to see him one more time. Yep. Make eye contact with him. <laughs> I watched Gay stab past Paul and the old man said, Lady Jessica, I but learned this day that I've wronged you in my thoughts. You needn't forgive. Through fair old friend, Paul said, as you can see, my back is toward no door. I love that. That camaraderie. <laughs> he we used to get mad if he sat with his back to the door. Yeah. He's exactly. like, I knew it was you, Gert. He's like, I knew it was you, Thufir. He's like, my, my feet can be mimicked. Don't sit with your back to the door. The universe is full of doors, says Hawat. And my, my father's son, Paul asked. More like your grandfather's. You've this manner and the look of him in your eyes. And I am my father's son, Paul said, for I say to you, Thufir, that in payment for your years of service to my family, you may ask now anything you wish of me, anything at all. Do you need my life now, Thufir? It's not what he needs. And um, Paul asks him, is there pain? He says, there is pain, my duke, but the pleasure is greater. He half turned in Paul's arms, extended left hand palm up toward the emperor, exposing the needle, cupped against his fingers. See, majesty, your traitor's needle. Did you think I wouldn't give my life to the surface of the Atreides? Would give them less now. That's it. So good. Awesome. I love that, that he's loyalty. like, fuck you to the emperor too, before he does Yes. That. Yeah, exactly. He holds it up to show the emperor. Like, and that just goes back to, you know, I think Paul has been able to, to galvanize the, the Fremen people the way he has in part because of the, the synchronous, you know, like the, the, what, what Fremen and the house of Trades share in common is a very strong sense of duty and loyalty. Um, and you see that in this moment, you see it with Thufir that even in the moment of his death, he's going to affirm his loyalty to house Atreides mm-hmm. that they have still commanded that much respect. And I think that's, that's part of what played into Paul's ability to, to lead and to galvanize such support because of, because of the, the respect he commands by, by being honest with his people. And Thufir, and Thufir, too, got a lot of that loyalty from Leto before Paul. Yeah. Just that powerful service and how Leto really took care of him. And uh, this leads into the argument about the spice, as we were talking about. I love that moment, too, when they, when they get through, they're arguing, and the emperor's like, oh, I got my armada above. And he's like, shut up. Don't interrupt me. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen now. Get the guild guys over here. The guild guys come in, and Paul's just like, listen. And the guild, the guild, the guildmen say to him, "Do you know what you're saying?" He's like, "Yeah." The the, the actually the guildmen actually say it specifically. They say you would blind yourself and condemn us to slow death. Have you any idea what it means to be deprived of the spice liquor once you've been addicted? And Paul says, "The eye that looks ahead to the safe course is closed. The guild is crippled. Humans become isolated creatures on isolated planets. I might do this out of spite." He says, <laughs> "Clear as day, I know what's going to happen." And I'm still going to do it. <laughs> and the Gilsmen are just flabbergasted by this. Yeah. They're like, can we talk this over? <laughs> he doesn't even want to hear it. He's like, done. Tell them to leave. Yeah. Yeah. There is no more that- negotiating. And I like that. The power to destroy a thing is the ability to control it. And you've agreed that I have that power. There is no more negotiating. There is no more compromise. Obey or suffer. Yeah. <laughs> and I like that Paul finally is utilizing this upper hand. It's about time. Yeah. yeah, finally, for the tables to fully turn. Yep. 
And Gurney's wondering, like, will they obey? And Paul's like, yes, they have such a narrow vision of time. What a sentence, or at least a fragment of a sentence. What a narrow vision of time they have is, is something he's telling Gurney. They can't see ahead. <laughs> They're yeah. just here now. It's impossible for them. And we're talking about the goddamn prescient Muad'Dib. Yeah. Yeah, and it is interesting to think about how the guild's prescience is so limited because they're it's only so using it. Yeah, and they're only using it to navigate, you know, paths through the stars, which is something that's very much rooted in the present. Like right. they're looking maybe ahead in time a little bit, but that's only to navigate in the present moment. Like they're like he says, their view of time is narrow and it's specific. Yep. They don't have that broader picture. This, this brings some attention to uh, the Benny Gesserit truthsayer, of course, Reverend uh, Mother Mahayam, who's trembling, Paul says. There are other poisons the Reverend Mother can use for their tricks. She's trembling at the thought of, of, of the spice being destroyed. I mean, that is also not a thing she considered. Yeah, yeah. It's so she, interesting that Paul is just shaking everybody's expectations up. That's part of his power. Right. That he's doing the, the unexpected, the most unexpected things. To the point where Mahayim relies on that old Benny Jesuit loyalty and turns to Jessica and she's like, what, what's going on with your son? What happened? We had a plan. <laughs> I, th- I see that your son is indeed the one for that you can be forgiven, even the abomination of your daughter. She even she says that to, to Jessica. <laughs> the abomination of and, your daughter. And dude, I love this out of Paul. This is one of his best statements. He says, you never had the right or cause to forgive my mother of anything. Oh, yeah. In other words, you have no power to forgive her. Your forgiveness is meaningless. It <laughs> doesn't matter. We don't accept it because we don't care. You have no power here. Super. Love that shit. Yeah. Just dismisses her authority completely. Yeah, and he's <laughs> like, listen, you know, I'm a, I'm a human gum jabbar, just like you wanted me to be. I'll kill you with a word. <laughs> She's like, damn. And dude, it's just, it's so good how he, he confronts her, really. He does. Know, saying, he really puts it on her. He's closing he up all his, he's closing up all the loops. He closing up the loops, man. Like, shoring he's like, up. Shoring up all the loops he had in the, he, last time he saw Mother Behind him, he was really on the back foot. It was a lifetime ago. Might as well have been. <laughs> She's like, but I, but I made you a human. What? He's like, pay attention. <laughs> Observe her, comrades. <laughs> she knows now that 90 generations have reduced the person. Here I stand, but I will not do her bidding. And this gets back to something I said earlier, Matt, which is this idea. You had this breeding program. You had this idea that you're going to produce the Kwisah Chaturak, right? And you did probably with the misconception that you were going to be able to control the Kwisah Chaturak. That's a mistake. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You thought because you could produce him that you could control him, yep. but that is not the same thing. And and it's and it's because what do they want? The Bene Gesserit want access to the knowledge associated with all of this. That's all they want. They want access yeah. to the knowledge that the Kwisatz Chaturak can bring because they can break that mold of the uh, of the masculine side of the uh, the masculine side, which is closed off for them for now. Just mm-hmm. the, just the female genetic memory, as it were. Yeah. 
And they had many failed options. They've tried this a few times. Fade Routho may have been. Did you know that Count Fenring was to be the Kwisatz Haderach? Oh, that's right. I forgot yeah. about that. Um, do you know why they said he wasn't? I don't, they probably go into this deeper in, in probably the books about him. Um, but um, because he was a genetic eunuch. Oh, okay. So they're like, no. And he was like, so, so a couple things about Fenring, because we're going to meet him in a second. Fenring is was a potential candidate for Kwisatz Chaturak. He was trained, and he stands outside of prescience. He's an anomaly. Ooh, so, so he can't be red. Paul looks at him and gets nothing. That's, that's horrifying. Right. I do that. Yeah. So, and that's why he makes such a great assassin because he could assa- he could eliminate Benny Gesserit. They won't even know, and that's what makes him such a scary weapon. <laughs> And in yeah. a very trained killer, they're, they're in fact later later when the, when we're coming up on the emperor saying kill him, and, and Fenring goes, I could, and Paul probably would be killed by Fenring if they fought. He probably can't fight him. He's outside of that prescience. He's a, he's a he's an anomaly to Paul. He's deadly in one on one combat. He's a, a a renowned assassin. When you are the house assassin of the imperial house, you're the greatest <laughs> assassin in the galaxy. Yeah. That's scary. And when you look at him, you're like, he's kind of weird. He's a Weasley looking guy. He's deadly. He's a deadly dude. And, uh, and, and yeah, he's always been, Hasmir's a, he's, he's interesting. Uh, it says here, if you look it up on his uh, wiki, it's pretty cool because, you know, they have the Dune wiki. Fenring was part of the Benny Gesserit breeding program and was one of the Kwisatz Hatter candidates, but was crippled by his being a genetic eunuch. Fenring's talent con- concentrated into furtiveness and inner seclusion and rendered him invisible to Prussian vision, even to the present of someone as powerful as Paul Muad'Dib. So cool. If Paul Damn. can't see you, Benny Jesra no. can't see you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're, Nobody dude, can. Can you imagine him walking pat, walking up to the Benny Jesra and them just trembling? Cause they're like, there's nothing. I see no, I have no insight. I'm just looking, I'm looking at a ghost. Fenring's a ghost. That's badass. It's badass, man. So, after berating her for a long time and uh, Jessica <laughs> demanding that he shut up and, and Jessica's like, gets to finally back talk her, silence yourself, she says to Mohaim. And, uh, yeah, I'll give you one thing, Paul said. You saw part of what your race needs, but how poorly you saw it. You think to control human breeding and intermix a select few according to your master plan, how little you understand of what. <laughs> right? And in 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 now I'm scared. She's like, don't quiet. This is Benny Jesuit business. Silence. Yeah, this, this shit's confidential. What are you doing blabbing at all? Mm-hmm. I remember your Gom Jabbar, Paul said, You remember mine. I can kill you with a word. And damn. That's it. <sighs> And the emperor comes in and he does his stuff, man. He blusters and blah, blah, blah. And he's but like, yeah. you do not dare. He tries the do, he tries the harumphing, do not dare, powerful white guy thing, you know. And, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Lado, dude, Lado, I'm calling him. Paul's like, bro. You have no power anymore. Yep. That's what's, that's what's so funny about the, the emperor at this moment. He's still acting as as he has authority you know still barking orders still waving his arm and giving it's his only play 
It's his only play. Because it's maybe, like at the end of the day. Maybe you can put enough fear into that. It's like it's like anything when they're like, if you claim one Big Mac, we will come down here with the might of the IRS. It's like, <laughs> shit, that's kind of a scary thought. And your hope is that you can bluster yourself. That's all he's got left, right? Yeah. Is yeah. you, you, we're going to, I, if I still have the power, my mouth still commands the Imperium and that is heavy. A lot of people would wilt under that pressure. Paul's like, <laughs> yeah, okay, sure. But this is also after Paul is basically looking at the princess and being like, that's we got move. our easy way out of this. We, we know what we need to do. Easy for them. Hard for, hard for. Shaddam, because Shaddam has to abdicate his throne to Paul in Irulan. Yeah. He should just say, hey, at least your, at least your line continues. Although yeah. it's not matrilineal, so there'll be Atreides kids, but you know, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> you still know. got some grandbabies and you're alive, so that's chill. You're, and and I, I love how I love how even Irulan's like, after witnessing all of this, she wasn't thrilled with Paul at the start of this, but She's like, this guy's fit to be your son. I, I just love the flip here by Paul. It's such a great flip where he's like, listen, I mean, Cheney's feelings aside, we'll get to that in a minute, but what a, what a great, what a great Imperium move. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a Fremen move. This is an Imperium move and this is a good one. This yeah. is some Game of Thrones, Tywin Lannister shit. How about we just get married? Conflict's over. I'm the emperor. And the emperor's like, but but I'm the emperor's like, not anymore. <laughs> not anymore, bitch. Now, it's at this stage of the discussion where I must ask you, Matt, when he proposes this idea, what's going through your head? I, for a, I'll admit, for a minute, I was like, oh, is he just going to discard Chani and be like, yeah, that, like for purposes of settling this conflict for for taking the throne and for preventing this jihad of mine from going throughout the galaxy this is what i have to do sorry um but no i loved his his response where once once chani comes over and is like it's awesome you know basically like do you do you wish me to leave um, he goes on to say that that which binds us cannot be loosed. Now watch these matters closely for I w- wish to see this room later through your wisdom. So he is still <laughs> very much dedicated to her and reliant on her. Like he's still, in, even in that moment, saying he wants her wisdom and her companionship, that he is loyal to her. What a part of the story. I, honestly, this is kind of a beautiful part of the story. It, it's it's something we haven't spoken enough about, maybe because the author didn't give us a ton. He gave us some to go on, but Paul and Shaney. I, I mean, is this, are we seeing an actual loving relationship here? I I think so. And I think it's that kind of comes, beautiful. Yeah. And I think that comes from the example he had of his mother and father, like, you know, they they were a genuine loving couple, um, and very dedicated, very loyal to one another. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's you know, Paul's conception of a relationship is that it should be a loving one. And and yeah. he's yeah. he's dedicated to his girl. And in and, and I love that. And she's dedicated to him to the point where she says, Should I leave? Like her loyalty. I mean, you want to talk ride or die. <laughs> ride or you- die, day one. <laughs> right. But you're right, this example coming from perhaps Leto and Jessica, and perhaps something that he can build upon and improve in his own life. 
how he'll, you'll never leave my side again, he says. This is nothing. This is politics. This is meaningless. And I like the culture shock for Cheney. She's like, oh, because where I come from, marriage fucking means something, you know? Yeah. It's right. not, it's not politics. At least I don't think so. I don't, I couldn't say enough about the Fremont to know, but it doesn't seem as such. Right. Right. But, um, but yeah, I like, I like this. Uh, how about this? Let me ask you this question. Did you see Paul making a play for the emperor's throne going into this chapter? Going into the chapter, I or wasn't. Like, oh, he's just going to get immunity of some kind and go on living in the desert, or like what? what I, you, to be, go ahead. I I was kind of thinking that I was almost half wondering that a Paul was going to like abolish the throne, I like see. kind of just like overtake it completely, make Arrakis the the capital world, and be like, we rule the Fremen rule the universe <laughs> now. Like, fuck you. Um, I I kind of thought he was going to go that direction, but I, I, the direction he goes is much more brilliant. Like and the way idea more of powerful, just, way more powerful. It's going to consolidate his power throughout the entire he's universe. The and he, he's the emperor, and he has the, he's going to have the land shreds, you know, kneeling before him. <laughs> yeah. Now, traditionally speaking, the land shroud would keep the empire, the imper- the Im- the emperor, pardon me, in check uh, by way of council. And now I'm thinking Seleucus Secundus Sardaukar is Paul just another emperor, except now he has Fremen instead of Sardaukar. Yeah. Yeah. What's going to happen when Fremen get off the desert and they go, wow, plants and baths and water. This is how I want my children to live. I don't want them to struggle out there. And and that's the thing. I, I, I always love how sometimes we have this romantic notion that people who come from these things uh, maybe have a nobility to them that that people quote unquote more civilized lack that may or may not be true and I say largely it depends on the individual but I also like this over romanticized idea like oh they don't want to leave Arrakis that's their life that's what they know yeah hardship and death all the time maybe they want to go to Caladan and put their feet in the ocean maybe they do <laughs> and what's yeah. going to happen as their ambitions grow this is always a problem. They're not a problem. This is always a, a thing that happens with humanity and civilization. Once people start to want for more, once you high, once you handle your hierarchy of needs, as it were, sometimes ambitions begin to grow. And this gets into what's the growing ambition of the Fremen going to be under their Muad'Dib when he's the fucking emperor? Is this the path to jihad? Maybe that was unforeseen, or was it foreseen? It raises a lot of great questions. Yeah. Yeah. Really gives you a picture of how it could get out of, get out from under Paul's control as well. That the desires of the Fremen, especially once they are in control of the universe and can travel among planets and see more like that, that it just might start to naturally expand on its own. That's right. And this leads us to, is there a Harkonnen among you? Fade Rautha. <laughs> the name Baron. Baron, now that the old man's dead, Gurney said, he'll do for what I've. Can you take him, Gurney? My lord jests. Gurney wants to kill Fade Rautha because of the abduction, rape, and murder of his sister at the hands of Harkonnen agents. So, yeah. Gurney's got a real problem with the Harkonnen. And uh, this gets into a Bit of a tense moment between Gurney and Paul. Paul's like, they wronged me more than you, and I'm sorry, but it, they just have. And that's a fact. And, and he finally gets Gurney to relent. 
But um, yeah. but he really he really pushes Fade, and Fade's like, "I will fight you, Canley." Is the Canley. first the first thing he says, Canley. And uh, your father named this vendetta Atreides. You call me coward while you hide among your women and offer to send a lackey against me. And he calls him out right on the floor. Fade wants a piece of Muad'Dib, and Fade's a trained fighter. Yeah, fought in arenas. Could have been a could have been a subject of this breeding program. Fought yeah. in arenas. Yeah, he's a great personal combat fighter. Nobody liked Fenring, but um. <laughs> and uh, they start talking about poison, and Jessica gives him the hey. Essentially, like a, a Manchurian candidate word that she knows would be in his mind that would stupefy him, essentially. Like an yeah. off switch. That'll make him slow. Yeah. Yeah. Make him fight in syrup. Yep. And uh, well, this moves quickly into hand to hand combat. And Paul denies himself the special advantage. He wants none of it, which is hilarious because this Harkonnen fucking swine's going to cheat at some point, which is exactly what he tries to do with a poison yeah. dart. As they get into it, they strip down, they whip out their knives, they go at each other. And I like this because we get to see some of the psychology of combat here, which is silence unsettles Fade. And I like this idea and how it's described as Fade just trying to taunt and get at Paul with words, and Paul's just silent. It reminds me of some of these accounts you heard of when the Romans went to Britannia. So when the Romans went to Britannia and they created Romano-Britain, as it were, they took it over and landed there, you know, that the Britannians were, or the Britons, as it were, they were very much wanting to fight one-on-one, let's go, pump up, rah-rah, and try to imagine how unsettling it would have been to watch the way Romans fought. Silence. Yeah. They don't do that shit. They're quiet. Moving as a unit. They move as a unit. They're not going to get called out in a single combat. They're not going to rah-rah. They're not going to call you out. They're going to put their chins down. They're going to look, they're going to look at you <laughs> through the bottoms of their eyebrows and they're going to plod forward as a merciless machine. The second they start to get a little winded or the timer hits, the guy blows the whistle, they cycle in and out. Next one's come in. Meanwhile, you're just trying to pull a guy off to do some heroic shit. You're trying to be, you know, a, a single combat specialist. That's unnerving as fuck. Now think about Fade Rouse. All he's doing is running his mouth. And Paul's silence unnerves him. And Paul notices it right away. And he says, I will use this to my advantage against him. Yeah. Yeah, I will keep, I will maintain my silence and keep him on edge. May thy knife chip and shatter. (laughs) (laughs) He calls him a dancer. Paul says he's a talker. There's another weakness. He grows uneasy in the face of silence, right? Doesn't say anything. Circles him in silence. And um, he's asking him, how would you like, uh, how would you want pagan rights? How would you like to be buried? Essentially, just trying to get in his head. Yeah. And deny him every step of the way. Paul's, uh, is this great quote uh, that comes up, and it's from Duncan Idaho, of course, we know a sword master, who, who instructed Paul the following. 
Use the first moments in study. You may miss many an opportunity for quick victory this way, but the moments of study are insurance of success. Take your time and be sure. I think that this can be applied to everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everything. S- right? Observe and study. Don't rush. Do it. Do the fundamentals, right? Don't just learn the guitar solo. Do the fundamentals. How about in chess? Chess is a game I picked up about a year ago. I played it about a thousand times since <laughs> last May online. And I just play and I get a little bit better and I start to play against people and I've and I've become quite enamored with the game. And I, I open as yellow, as, I mean as yellow, as white, I open the same way every time. As black, <laughs> almost the same way every time. Why? Because I'm not good enough to do other openings yet. Same way every time. Just about yeah. like 90% of my games. And I used to be like, oh, let me try let me try Queen's Gambit. Let me try this. Let me try this trap. Let me try this fancy setup. And it's funny because when I play people, I go, look at all these fancy setups. I see what you're doing for the quick victory. And I've lost. I've lost to those cheesy like five moves because I'm not I'm new and I'm learning it. But but if you're a new player and you're beating people in five moves, you're never gonna get better at chess. Yeah. Yeah. S- like 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 Duncan saying, slow down, learn what learn the process because those fundamentals are gonna really inform you down the line. And I love that. Pass up the opportunity. You may be passing up the opportunity for a quick victory. And that's the best thing I can relate it to is something like chess or learning any kind of complex thing. Don't go do this first. Do the fundamentals first, you know? Yeah. It's like when you know, when LSG we had this big production meeting once and we were trying to get better and more consistent at things. And we had all these big ideas. And then we were just like, wait a minute. How about we just do this every week on time and make sure we do that first? Let's do that. <laughs> let's, let's fix the holes in our game. It's like, if I have a boat with holes in it, I'm not going to make a fancier sail. I fix the fucking holes in the boat. Then we can make the fancier <laughs> sail. You know, it's like, I just like this idea. Take your time and be sure. That's not to say to hesitate. That's just to say, Use these moments as study. We see this with great fighters. They probe, they watch you, they feel you out, right? We saw it with, I mean, it's not a great example. Conor McGregor probably shouldn't have been in the ring with fucking, what's his face? Oh, Mayfield. <laughs> May- Mayweather. Uh, Floyd Mayweather. 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 And you see Mayweather just analyzing your attack patterns for five rounds. And he's like, okay, I know what you do every <laughs> I got time. You. <laughs> I've got, got you. you now. Have you been programmed? I'm a Borg. I've programmed you into my brain. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. And this gets to uh, some treachery, a flip dart, very cunning. And it's almost like a girdle. Yeah. And it's a false flip dart. It fade knew Paul would be clever or an enemy could have been clever. And he had it on his, uh, it looked like it should have been on one hip because that was the obvious place for it because Paul was hip to the, uh, but it came from the other side. It almost gets Paul, but it doesn't, of course. And uh, there's not a lot of exchange of blows, as you would imagine, in a knife duel. And he just gets him, jams it up through his neck, chin into him, done. That's a wrap yeah. or fade. Up through his jaw and into his brain. <sighs> yep. Brutal. Brutal fight. Yep. And it is a good, it's a good long back and forth fight, just described so well. Indeed. Um, I really enjoyed that. Really enjoyed it. And you know, I I had my own I've seen the the David Lynch Dune. I feel like I've talked about that before. I've seen the David Lynch film version. So I still remember we covered Sting. it back in the day. Cat nipples. 
The cat nipples, baby, milking them good. Time for a revisit of that, I think. I think so. I've actually been kind of wanting to rewatch that lately, so I'm down. Um, My <clears> name <throat> is a killing word. That's not in the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the weirding way. Yeah, yeah the weirding <laughs> way. They just fire beams out of little gadgets. The weird choice from the director. <laughs> they need visual shit for that you know back in the day but anyway you were saying well yeah no i mean i just i really enjoyed this this whole sequence this whole long sequence of and again the going into it as well paul is talking about how the entire universe is coming down to this moment to to what is happening you know now he says this is the climax from here, the future will open. The clouds part onto a kind of glory. And if I die <laughs> here, they, they'll say I sacrificed myself that my spirit might lead them. And if I live, they'll say nothing can oppose Muad'Dib. So Indeed. he knows, which I think is cool because it's like you don't know what the outcome's going to be, but also the outcome's kind of inevitable, if that makes sense. Of like, Indeed. we don't know if he's going to live or die. We don't know who's going to win. But we know that the the uh, Fremen jihad and the momentum of it is going to carry forward with or without Paul. Um, that's something that Paul's aware of. Which means with or with <laughs> – so here comes the real question, and I'll ask you, what do you think? Do you think it carries on with or, with it, with or without Paul regardless of his life or death? I Meaning think if he's it- alive – Will it continue if he doesn't want it to? Honestly, by the end of the book, and I don't want to jump too, too far. I mean, I mean I'm, we're, I'm we're kind we, of there. We're, we're there. We're in it. We're this is the end of the book. Um, I do think by the end that it's going to keep going, and I'm not sure if Paul's going to keep his grip on it. Right. Um, that's the feeling I get. That's there. There's a feeling, and I feel like it's, it's just in Herbert's writing, and he's really good at this. There's a feeling of unease. Right. about the whole situation throughout the entire book, but especially now where it's so muddled to Paul, he can't make it out. He's unsure. And, you know, he's also, but he is sure that no matter the outcome of this fight, that things are going to continue in some way. Um, that, that fact alone is part of what made me think, yeah, I think this jihad continues on kind of no matter what Paul does. Maybe Paul can, mitigate some of the damage can kind of rein it in a little bit steer it in a certain direction but it's still kind of like a bucking bull that it's like yeah you can hold on to it but you're not really in control of it you know like it's going to do what it does it's going to get out of hand let me ask you another question because if i save this to the end i won't remember do you think paul goes deeper into imperium life or do you think he continues in this path of understanding what he is and what the Kwisatz Chatterach means. Like, in other words, is he going to be on the throne, just this dude disappeared in depression, or is he going to really be an emperor? Damn, that's a good, that's a really good question. If you don't have an answer, it's just something to ponder. I asked the listener to ponder if they haven't read ahead yet. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wonder, I mean, I, I, there's a part of me that thinks Paul's not going to leave Arrakis. Right. Um, that Paul Paul knows, you know. I mean, at the end of the day, the power of his of his jihad, of the power the power that put him on the throne is the power of the Fremen, united and you know working with him. And I you think, think he's, he's going to move the Imperium seat to Arrakis. You're saying? I kind of wonder that. 
Yeah. yeah. That if that could be the case, because I don't, I don't know if he would leave Arrakis at this point. It's kind of the true seat of his power, the power of being sure. Fremen. Yeah. I mean, he yeah. used the power of Arrakis to literally force the emperor to abdicate his throne in favor of him and take yeah. the guy's daughter. <laughs> Steal your girl and, in the most complicated way possible. And to have count, cause, cause after, so after the, the fate of fate is discovered and he's slain in this single combat. Fenring is called by the emperor and he says, kill him. And yeah, Fenring this. stops and thinks I could, which is horrifying. <laughs> even, even in this situation. And there's this great moment between Fenring where Fenring thinks I could kill him. And he knew this for truth. Herbert writes, Fenring he knew this thinks for truth. he knew this for truth. Something in his own secret of depth stayed the count then, and he glimpsed briefly, inadequately, the advantage he held over Paul, a way of hiding from the youth. Uh, furtiveness of person and motives no eye could penetrate. Paul, aware of some of this from the way the time nexus boiled, understood at last why he had never seen Fenring along the webs of Prussians. Fenring was one of the might-have-beens in almost Kwisatz Haderach, crippled by a flaw in the genetic pattern, a eunuch, his talent concentrated into furtiveness and inner seclusion. I love this next part. A deep compassion for the Count flowed through Paul, the first sense of brotherhood he'd ever experienced. Wow. You know, I when I, when I see that, I think... Part of that brotherhood is the sense of them being isolated by their own experience, yeah. their own perspective. That, that in a sense, they're very different because Paul has this wide reaching prescience that can go out there. And Fenrig doesn't have that, but Fenrig has the opposite that he is guarded from any prescience that, you know, mm -hmm. that he doesn't have prescience himself, but he is completely invisible to it. And that has its own kind of isolation its own kind of you know strangeness a strangeness of experience that is so unique and i think paul's situation is now so unique like who is his peer is anybody his peer at this point like not really hmm. um he, his experience is so at the peak of a summit and it's so unique and that i think he glimpses something that he shares with fenring in this moment that and, and that's what kind of inspires this feeling and he knows what he went through he went through the hand in the box he went through all of the training all of the stuff uh, we know fenring is trained as a mentat we know he's trained in all of these well i don't know if we know that for sure but i know <laughs> and we know their their training paths are very similar and uh, in that there is a sense of brotherhood there in in the isolation i think you're absolutely right and in, in, in what a fine point you've made about, does he have a peer? What's Aaliyah going to be in 10 years? <laughs> yeah. How powerful is Aaliyah? We, we don't know. So, yeah. But back to the matter at hand, Fenring, majesty, I must refuse. <laughs> and Shaddam slaps him in the face <laughs> because and it is his last chance yeah. His last chance. And I love what Fenring says. We have been friends, Majesty. What I do now is out of friendship. I will forget that you struck me. <laughs> and this is so true. fucking honorable. 
they are, they've been friends for a very long time, Fenring and Shaddam. In fact, when Paul tells, uh, when he tells the emperor, you will have Seleucus Secundus. So he's basically said, you're kind of de facto banished, but not really because it's your planet now to command. Which, if he's sending Shaddam to be the seat on Seleucus Secundus, my guess is he probably doesn't trust Shaddam, which means, is he not going to use Sardaukar going forward? And what does that mean? What does that industry look like in a few years when they're not being <laughs> used? What, are they going to form their own? I don't know. But here's what I do know. Fenring goes with the emperor to Seleucus Agundus. And oh. that's where he lives in the future. I won't, I won't get too much into uh, Fenring's fate. I, I advise looking it up if you're interested in catching him if he's, but, um, but yeah, that's where he goes to live. He goes with his friend. He's his friend. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. That's some loyalty. <laughs> yeah. And, um, God created Arrakis to train the faithful. That line comes up again. One cannot go against the word of God, which is Fremen talk. Now, question, Matt. Do the Fremen think Paul's God? Hmm, that's a good question. Here's um, why I ask. Because let's just say he's a prophet. <laughs> let's let's use modern terminology. <laughs> if he's just a prophet and not God, well, if the prophet runs afoul of what the people believe God want, then the prophet could be in trouble, right? This gets back to what you were saying. The jihad may go on whether or not Paul wants to or not. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So this gets into this whole thing. The Fremen have the word of Muad'Dib, Paul said. They will be flowing water here, open to the sky, green oases, rich with goods, but we have the spice to think of too. Thus there will always be desert on Arrakis and fierce winds and trials to toughen man. We Fremen have a saying, which is what I just said, God created Arrakis to train the faithful. One cannot go against the word of God. And uh, the old true sailor, the Reverend Mother Guys Mahaim, had her own view of the hidden meaning in Paul's words. Now she glimpsed the jihad and said, you cannot loose these people upon the universe. Paul snaps back by saying, you think back to the gentle ways of the Sadhuka. You cannot, <laughs> she whispered. And he says, you're a true sailor. Review your words. He glanced at the Princess Royal back to the Emperor. Best be done quickly, Majesty. The Emperor turned a stricken look upon his daughter. She touched his arm, spoke. For this I was trained, Father. He took a deep breath. And I, I love <laughs> how she's just pleading. She being in Mahayim, you cannot say stay this thing. You you <laughs> the Emperor's war the the the, 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 the truth say is warning Paul. You can't stay this thing. Yeah, you're not going to have the power for that. That's right. Ugh. Damn. The Emperor's entire Chone Company holdings is dowry. <laughs> He's to be stripped. <laughs> I want an earldom and Chome directorship for Gurney Halleck. And him and the fee, everyone's getting gifts. Oh, yeah. No, this is, this is his Oprah moment of, and you get a car, and you get a fiefdom. And he says it clearly here. That's why, that's why you, this may be a part of the book you, you, you forgot a little. But he basically says, Silgar's going to be the governor of Arrakis. Yeah. It is. The Fremen are mine. And he's like, what do you want, mom? I'm giving out gifts. I'm giving out fiefdoms <laughs> and titles. And she's like, well, maybe Caladan. 
Yeah. And then she says, I've become too much the Fremen and the Reverend Mother. I need a time of peace and stillness in which to think. <laughs> and this, uh, that is, you shall have. That you shall have. And, uh, you know, Paul gets down to, uh, you know, to, to Cheney and says, I swear to you now that you'll need no title. That woman over there will be my wife and you but a concubine because this is a political thing and we must weld peace out of this moment, enlist the great houses of the land shroud. We must obey the forms. This is Paul the Duke talking. Yet the princess shall have no more of me than my name, no child of mine, nor touch, nor softness of glance, nor instant of desire. Shane is a little skeptical of this. And uh, Jessica sticks up for him a little, saying, do you know my son? See that princess standing there, so haughty and confident? They say she has pretensions of a literary nature. (laughs) She does. She writes the <laughs> chapters of the book. Let us hope she finds solace in such things. She'll have little else. A bitter laugh escaped Jessica. Think on it, Cheney. That princess will have the name, yet she'll live as less than a concubine, never to know a moment of tenderness from the man to whom she's bound. While we, Cheney, we who carry the name of concubine, history shall call us wives. <sighs> That's it. That's the book. I I was honestly surprised that it ended there at that moment on those words. Um, you know, like at the end of the day, it, it was like so much was left unanswered. Like we we have the outcome of this of this uprising. Um, we have that as as you know our our real ending, and then we have what's given to our characters. We have the relationship between Paul and Chani. But it still felt like, damn, that that's the end. That's where that's where it's gonna stop. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more I've thought about it, the more I do like it. I like its abruptness. I like that it just stops in a sense. And where it stops, I thought was a really interesting spot as far as the the you know, the female characters go, that they kind of step up into this into the spotlight for a moment. Um, because you know, Jessica's been a, a great character the entire time. You know, Chani's an interesting character once she's introduced. And it's just, it's cool that it ends on this note of all of this myth, all of this storytelling, all of this grand legend that's going to be, that's already happening and forming around Paul and is going to carry forward into, you know, who knows what, as far as how, what it's going to mean for this jihad, what it's going to mean for the Fremen. But even in that big, large story around Paul, there are these other people and and at the end of the day he's going to be also remembered for who shaped him and who he had relationships with and the people who mattered to him and those those people in a sense matter just as much um the the influences on paul who paul holds court with um and so i thought it was cool that that we we ended on that spot i, I yeah. kind of you know grown it's grown on me the thing I like about the ending, it's funny because I remember initially when I first read it years ago, I was like, damn, that's weird. But I didn't think too much about it because I still love the book. <clears throat> I've I've grown to like this ending more and more. And, and, and I think I'm going to try to explain this well. Uh, wish me luck. <laughs> Godspeed. <laughs> I think that so many of the thematic elements presented in Dune center around title center around right, birthright, destiny, fate, uh, 
you are going to be this thing he's always told. You're going to do this, this, and that. All of these things you're supposed to do. And uh, you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to lead these people. You want to, all of, all of these things that you're supposed to do, all of these titles that you are bound to represent your ducal signet and the responsibility thrust upon you that you want maybe, but you want really because you've been conditioned to want it. And are you making your own choices in any of this, Paul? Or are you just riding a wave of a thing you see? I don't really know. And uh, entitle is a, is a thing in this. Wife, what does that mean? Concubine, what does that mean? I don't know if I want to get too into the, into the weeds on that, but, but just to sort of boil this down to the simple thing of this. Paul and Cheney's relationship exists outside of all of this, and in that simplicity, there is something beautiful there. And I think all of this shit that plays upon everybody, everybody's ambition, everybody's trying to maneuver. Dune's interest is in the intrigue. And one of the most fascinating accomplishments of this book is the fact that that's all stripped away in the very last paragraph, which is simply, we are wives. Which is to say, we've made choices. Really, Jessica being called wife, sure. Yes, I like that. But really, and yes, echoed again in, in Cheney, but really Cheney and Paul's relationship, I think is, there's a simple beauty to it that I find romantic. And I think I like that. Um, I like it against everything that could possibly happen in this Imperium and with the Bene Gesserit and their Missionaria Protectivas and all of the machinations at play. At the end of the day, Paul wants to marry Cheney. Paul wants to be with Cheney. And that's what matters to him. The machinations matter because we need to wrap up the plot. But what do we know about the character? He made a choice mm-hmm. or, or not. You don't choose who you're attracted to, but he made a choose choice to pursue Cheney. Cheney made a choice to pursue him, and together they ended up, and they care about each other, and they love each other. And there's something simple in that beauty. And it's outside of everything Dune has taught us about fate and title and everything else. And to me, I think that's what makes it a very good ending. Um, and when I think about it like that, I go, good shit. But I'll tell you the truth. It took some mental gymnastics to get there over the years of yeah. reading this book. Um, I like I, that, though. I, I, yeah. I really like that frame of looking at it, of it being about the exercising of, a, of real choice, of right. real meaningful, of a meaningful chosen relationship, um, which that Faith is. versus free will is a theme in this book. Right. And like yeah. even, you know, one of the last acts of Paul in this book is to initiate essentially this marriage between him and Princess Irulan, this political marriage. Um, and, it, you know, that's a choice he's making. That Irulan's but it's a not. choice. <laughs> right. True. It's a great counterpoint, though, to the end of yeah. the book. Like, right? Yeah. We see the Imperium life, the title life. And, and I, there's a part of me that feels bad for Irulan, especially with Jessica's bitterness towards her. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, what, I'm sorry, I jumped in on you. No, yeah, I mean, that, that's b- building off exactly what I was thinking, you know, like, it's interesting because so much of it, as you've already said, is is 
you know, we see Paul make this choice to marry Irulan, but it's not really a choice in the sense of it's strategy. what either party wants. It's out of strategy. It's out of necessity. It's out of, you know, political expediency um, <laughs> in the moment. And, <laughs> right. And like to see, to be reminded that Paul also has this other life that, uh, that is a chosen life, an adopted life, something that, that has become central to who he is, um, is, is interesting. It, it's it's a nice, it's a nice comparison. Um, I like it. Hell Yeah. Dude, it's a great book. It's still a great book. My tiniest of complaints is more Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. I think he's great. It would have been cool to learn a little bit more about Fenring. We saw him a little with the pits and him yeah. dealing with Harkonnen, uh, Baron, and, and Fade. But um, but man, I really, I really think this book is fantastic still to this day. What a world that was created, often imitated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, just this idea of this type of intrigue written in the 60s which you could probably see from impressions through uh, external substances. I mean, that was a big thing in the 60s. <laughs> but, uh, but man, what a fantastic story that really is timeless. I never read the story and think, wow, this is 60s as fuck. You no, know, there are yeah. some movies you watch and like, this is, couldn't be any more 1982, right? <laughs> and, uh, and there just seems to be a timeless quality to this book and the intrigue is fantastic. It makes you want to learn more it makes you want to read more and get into more. And I think it's fantastic. Um, yeah. I, I'm no, ready I, to put the Dune book down for a little while because it's <laughs> because it's been a long process for us. It's hard for me to read multiple narratives at the same time, although I am, I did pick up The Shining in the midst of this, which is a very well-written book as well. Um, but uh, yeah, man, fantastic. I'm, I'm very happy with this. And, and, and I applaud the patience of people who waited for this final chapter. We wanted to get it right. We were set to go. We backed off. We both felt we weren't prepared. So we gave it a little more time. And the reality is we gave it more time. Um, we were a little disrespectful of our time, of your time waiting. So we thank you for getting here. Hopefully you're still subscribed. And uh, <laughs> obviously check out LSG Media for other shows that we do. But um, what else do you want to say about this before we, before we bid these good people to do? I feel pretty tapped overall, man. But I, you know, I gotta say, like, I think the most, the single most successful thing about this book was building an utterly convincing, rich, interesting world. Like, I, I've, I am so intrigued to read more. I, I, I am, regardless of whether we cover it or not, I probably will be reading Dune Messiah. Um, yeah, I I'm picked just, it I'm, up. Uh, I have it on the shelf downstairs, dude. I think it's only like 300. I haven't read the other two books. I've read a bunch of, I've read some of the prequels, but I've, um, did I read the second book? I don't think I did. I think I know the story though, which stinks. But um, <laughs> I read a couple of the prequels because I wanted to read about House Carino and House uh, uh, Harkonnen and House Atreides before. But um, but yeah, I'm not opposed to the, to us looking back on this um it's I, I don't even know if it hits 300 pages dude i think it's pretty short huh damn but then you just make it more enticing i mean it's less than half of the size of this thing but <laughs> i don't want us to get into promising anything right now i i don't want to i don't want to do that so yeah let's just agreed. leave it at dune for now and uh, maybe we'll do projects like this in the future but i think Matt and I have both been excited to maybe free up a little bit of time for something. You know, Matt and I used to do a couple things, and now we just do the one thing with Dune. So 
maybe this will open us up for some something else that we can that we can chip away at over time. Um, so yeah, there's options on the table, but we're not going to get into all that now. But stay tuned, right? Visit us on lsgmedia.net. Check it out. Check out our other shows. Kirking off if you're into Trek, Lost Drive-In, where we do thematic coverage of movies. You know, we did a Cosmic Horror. We've done Mandalorian. We're going to do Mandalorian Month. I'm excited. We did Medieval Month. A bunch of medieval movies. You know, it's been a real blast. So come see oh, us. Yeah. We let our hair down in Lost Driving for sure. We were a lot more studious for Dune, but um, <laughs> a little bit more wild in our normal uh, purview, as it were. But uh, <laughs> Matt, thanks for making this happen. I appreciate Hell you, buddy. Yeah. I'm glad we got all your new equipment set up, but um, let's let these people get on, get on with their lives. And uh, we thank you so much for listening to us cover the great Dune by the great Frank Herbert. And um, with that, we're out of here. You've been listening to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. For information on upcoming chapters and to continue the conversation, visit us on Discord at libertystreetgeek.net slash discord.